Hello and welcome. Recording live from Indianapolis, this is the Racing with Rob and Roller podcast. I'm Josh Roller, and I'm joined, as always, by Rob Peters. Rob, say hi to the crowd. Hello, everybody. All right, today's show will feature four races from Bristol and Pocono. Uh, this past weekend, NASCAR Cinderella story fell just laps short of a storybook ending, and controversy in a 200-lap race began with a lap one wreck that then followed by a split opinion in IndyCar's continuance at Pocono. Before we jump into the thick of it today, be sure to follow us on Twitter. Rob is at R-P-E-E-T-E-R-S-3-3, and I am at R-O-L-L-E-R underscore zero one. And you can now follow the podcast itself on Twitter. The new account for the Racing with Rob and Roller podcast is simply at Rob and Roller capital R in Rob, and capital R in Roller. As I said, there is a lot to talk about, and Rob and I both have plenty to say, so let's get started with the Gander Outdoors Truck Series UNHO, uh, UNOH 200. The Truck Series never disappoints at Bristol, does it, Rob? No, it doesn't. It's It was a fantastic race. Uh, I had a lot of fun being able to watch it, and there was a lot of really, really cool things that that ended up happening in that race, so I'm really excited to get to just jump in and start talking about it today. Yeah, so pole sitter uh, Brett Moffitt and Ross Chastain really dominated the race uh, and made the race really exciting, as we'll get to in a second, uh, because Chastain was sent to the back for a safety violation, uh, and he would have to charge the way back through the field. Brett Moffitt would, though, go on to win, uh, and, and, and Ross Chastain would finish third. There were nine lead changes and again, most of them were among Moffitt and Chastain, but Infinger led once for 57 laps. That's the most laps he's ever led in a race in his career. Uh, topping 52, he led ga- uh, Gateway earlier this year. Um, some playoff drivers had issues. Chastain was able to overcome his, as I mentioned. Johnny Sauter was the first to have issues when he tangled with John Hunter Nemechek. He was driving the 8 truck for his family. Uh, when he spun back across the track, hit Sauter's truck, and just really wasn't the same truck after that. Uh, but came away with 11th place finish. But he was running in the top five. Um, Tyler Ankrum fared the worst, though. He had an electrical problem uh, that he even had to be pushed back because the engine shut off completely. He finished 20th, six laps down. Stuart Friesen and Matt Crafton did tangle, but both uh, would uh, walk out with good finishes. Friesen was fourth, Crafton was seventh. They would talk about it and were even laughing on pit road after the race. Um, that was a really interesting incident where there was a lap or a slow car on the bottom. Friesen wasn't looking like he was going to give him room, and Crafton kind of just stuck it in there and sent him around. So that that was a very, I'm like, oh, this isn't going to be good for mm-hmm. either of them. Um, so an updated playoff picture looks like this. Moffat won, so he's moving on. Uh, Chastain is t- plus 25. Friesen is plus 17. Infinger is plus 13. Crafton is plus 13. Sauter is plus 3. And then Hill is minus 3. And Ankrum is minus 13 with... Uh, Canadian Tire Motorsports Park in Las Vegas left in round one here. So let's get into the more discussion part here. Ross Chastain's aggressive driving. All right, very aggressive. Sent to the back, using the bumper a lot. The As we might talk in on a little bit later, the top side really didn't come in in the truck race. So it was a real bottom lane only in the corners, and it was like old Bristol, old, old, old Bristol. Um, and he said, so it was one lane around the bottom, that's what built this place. You come through the, through this tunnel, and there's talk about rattling cages. There's helmets thrown. If we're going to fill these places up, the car shield Chevy Chevy's going to fill uh, are going to be the one that adds the excitement. 
So did you have an issue with him using his bumper going through the field? No, and the reason why I didn't have a problem with this was primarily because, first of all, it was fun to watch the to watch it be mostly a low-line fest. You know, I liked that a lot. I thought that that was really, really good. I think that, you know, the PJ1 traction compound, putting it down there and kind of, like, keeping the upper lane a little bit dusty and things like that, you know, that's, that's you know, good strategy on NASCAR. It might, some people might look at it and say it's a little bit gimmicky, but, you know, whatever. You got to do what you got to do uh, in order to make the, the racing what fans want and what, in what in some cases, I think drivers want. And so Chastain going down there, it, watching him the whole race, it was like, all right, he's just, he's following behind a guy, and if the guy's just not letting him in, or, you know, he clearly can tell he's faster than the guy, he just bumps him out of the way, and that's just what old Bristol was. You know, you follow a guy for about a couple of laps, and once you realize you're faster than them, and once you realize that they're not going to give you the position, you just got to kind of tap him and let him know you're there, and say, hey, bud, I'm faster than you, I'm coming through, let me through. Uh, and, you know, they have the two options, they can either let you through, or they can just say no, and then get bumped, and, you know, you can push your way through that way. So I really didn't feel there was a problem inherently with what Chastain did, because, you know, I felt like it, that's just how you're supposed to run. That's just how it works, that's just, he played the game that he was supposed to play, uh, based on how the groove was, the bottom groove was, and it was very exciting. You know, I'm sure it probably upset and ruffled up some other guys, but, you know, that's just Bristol. Man, if you can't take that, if you can't take the hate, get out of the kitchen, man. <laughs> uh, I, I, he did ruffle feathers because he had, I, he was almost like take a number at the end of the race. Um, he was talking with uh, uh, a number of crew chiefs because Rudy Fugel and I think Marcus Richman was the other guy who came over there, and they were shouting at him. Uh, it, it, you know what? You're exactly right. And, and we saw three great races, and that was the first one. And I like the bump and run myself. I think because it, 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 you're, when you're racing side-by-side, side, like, ooh, is he going to get him this time? But using the bumper just adds another layer of, of excitement. He did regret one thing he said, though. You know, he did say a bunch of washed-up race car drivers. He did tweet, I think it was Rodney Childers, who commented something like, wow, I thought words of respect, kind of dealing with, yeah, that's the one thing I wish I could put back in my mouth. And But heat of the moment, that's 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 what oh, yeah. makes Bristol so great, is that sometimes you don't have a filter after afterwards. Um Heck, Dale Earnhardt even got booed there 20 yeah, years ago. You, I mean, come on. It's Bristol. And when you're running, I mean, it doesn't matter how many laps you're running. No. Whether you're running 200, 300, 500, it doesn't matter. You know, I think in a, when you're in a situation like that, all you want all you want to do is just win. You've got, if you've got a fast car, all you want to do is win. You're not thinking 100%. You're, you're, you're heated inside the car. You know, you're upset, you're angry that you're you're not moving through the field as fast as you are. You're dif- you're upset because it's so difficult to pass, you know, just how important track position is there. And and so I, I looked at that and I was just like, no, I don't, I mean, yeah, you probably didn't need to say that. You probably do need to keep your cool in some cases, but yeah, I don't blame him. Well, I, I think he's got a, his point, His I think his underlying point was like, look, this is what built this place. This is right. what filled 160,000 seats, you know, this is why they have 160,000 seats, is that that bump and run, this is aggressive style of driving, and I'm going to be the one that brings it. If no one else is going to, you can count on this 45 truck is going to bring it. So kudos to him for making it exciting. It was fun to watch him come up through the pack, and plus, you know, he's going for a championship. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, every point is counting because, like like I just said, he's, uh, he's 25 to the good right now. All right. Mm-hmm. If he doesn't get those extra ten positions, now he's only fifteen to the good, and he's second. And Freeze the one kind of in the catbird seat, yeah. and that's not even a really big catbird seat either. So look, I, I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed the racing from from Friday, uh, Thursday, 
excuse me, Thursday night on, mm-hmm. and that he set the tone. Yeah, so, because I think about when you think about what Ross was doing there, and you mentioned that points. Every position is one point, and when you're racing for a championship, you really can't afford to just give up any of those positions. No, because that's valuable points that you need, uh, especially in this in this playoff format. Ross needs those. If he he needs to be able to get himself into the next round, no matter what, because I mean he quit a whole ton of other opportunities just to do this, just to win this championship. I mean, this is his best opportunity to do so. He's got to do everything in his power to make sure. And he knew he had a fast car. He knew he probably had a car that was good enough to win the race. And when you get kind of, you know, you, you kind of have your day knocked off uh, the rails there by by a by a penalty that's not even really your own fault. And that's when you're you're just like, you know, I'm I'm coming through. And I'm coming through. I'm not even going to care. I don't care if you're in my way. I'm getting you out of my way because I've got to get to the front and I've got to make sure that I get as many points as I can. And, and, and Brett acknowledged that he probably had the best truck out there, or mm-hmm. the only maybe the only truck he could contend with. So it was, I, I I was a little frustrated with seeing like there was a take a number line there at the at the end of the race uh, for Ross. So, but you know what. We get used to this again. A couple more races under our belt, we'll 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 move on from it. But let's talk about two other things that happened. Uh, Rob, yeah. why don't you why don't you tell us about? It? Yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and get into these because these were two of the more interesting things to happen in the Truck Series race. And and for as exciting as the Truck Series race was, I mean, there was stuff we were talking about 24 hours later after this. So the first thing is probably one of the bigger. Uh, uh, things from the truck series were select radio communications from Natalie Decker's crew and Matt Crafton's crew. So I'm going to start ahead and I'm going to go in and start and, and kind of explain the Crafton situation. So uh, Matt Crafton's radio featured a tirade from a crew member. Not really sure who it is right now. A lot of people are saying it was Junior Joiner. I I don't know. There's no confirmation. There's not been any confirmation on particularly who said it. Some people are saying it's Junior Joiner. Take that with a grain That's of salt. That's crew chief for Matt Crafton. Right. Take that with a grain of salt. Um, but he featured a tirade from a crew member directed at the number 52 of Stuart Friesen because we mentioned earlier that the two of them had uh, a little bit of an incident together. They, you know, they, they got together. Friesen uh, had a problem, and Crafton had a problem, and and a lot of it is a lot of it. I, I really I can't actually repeat it on this show. It's just entirely profanity laced, uh, and uh, it featured um, it, it did feature what is considered to be a gay slur. Uh, a homophobic slur of some, of, of some kind. Um, obviously, some people were looking at this and, and wondering because the, the the word that was used in certain contexts is normal. You know, most people use it, but in the context of this, using it in a derogatory form, that's not okay. You know, and 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 it was it was very as shocking. And and Auto Week's Matt Weaver originally reported the radio communication. Uh, people took screenshots. Weaver himself even admitted that he had a screenshot, but he ended up deciding to delete the tweet because he felt like it was just too strong. It was just too much of bad taste. And that's kind of something big for Matt, too. Yeah. Matt, Matt usually just lays it on the line on the tweet. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it looked bad. It, it really, it, really it looked did. bad. It did. Um, and so what ended up happening was uh, people started... A few people started talking about this. Weaver specifically started talking about this, but really kind of left it after he explained why he deleted it. And so it really didn't gain a lot of momentum. But then there was uh, a day later, uh, there was a Jalopnik article that stated that uh, NASCAR was, quote-unquote, looking into the homophobic comments from that 88 uh, radio communication. So it'll be really interesting to see if anything comes out of it. I didn't really expect anything to come out of it 
or and, and if it does, I don't know if it'll be made public because I'm not really sure if NASCAR wants to take something like this public. They probably want to just deal with it in private, which I don't blame them considering the fact that that's probably best for their image. They don't need, you know, this to make mainstream news. They don't need somebody who doesn't cover racing to start talking about this and, you know, making it a bigger deal than it may, might be, you know, a fine, a penalty, you know, probation, something like that is probably better suited for for handling the situation um, from, from NASCAR's point of view. That's just in my opinion. Again, I don't know what they're going to do with this. The Jalopnik article didn't really go into detail. They just stated that a NASCAR official said that they were indeed looking into the, uh, the, 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 the radio communications. So, you know, and, and you added here this, were you surprised that more people weren't talking about this? And yeah, I actually kind of was because I felt, but at the same time, no, because it was only Weaver who tweeted it out and it was only out for such a brief period of time. And so in order to find the screenshots, you had to really look deep. You actually had to search for it on Twitter. Um, so I don't think many people were actively doing that, which is probably why it didn't get picked up more. But it was a little bit surprising to see more people weren't talking about this. They were more talking about what we're going to talk about here in a, in a few seconds on Natalie Decker. More people were talking about that than they were talking about this. I don't know, Josh. What do you, what did you think about that? Well, I was just surprised like no one asked more questions. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, you know, as as a reporter, you I'm surely they heard about this and that we didn't see some of the other, you know, mainstream big names that 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 everyone follows even just have a follow up tweet or looking at looking to this. So I, I was just surprised from that angle. Um, I I don't know, and I don't want to try to speculate on why or why they didn't. But I, I was just surprised from that standpoint that you had to go go to a Jalopnik Jalopnik article to find something, and or Matt Weaver's deleted screen you know tweet there he screenshotted, and and many other people did too. I mean, I have it on my phone. Obviously, I don't know why I have it on my phone. I probably wouldn't delete it, but I kept it there just for you know talk about just because just so that I can have it. Um, and and you know I think it's just. It's unfortunate that something like that happens, but it is the heat of the moment. But you do have to control yourself when you're when you push that radio button. You do kind of have to control yourself because you have to know that a lot of people are probably going to be listening into you. Oh yeah, it's particularly in 2019. This isn't 1999 where no. you have so much access. I can pull up Race View and 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 I can listen to any radio I want. And and that and plus the scanner people there at the race oh, actually, too. Yeah, I mean you. Yeah, you got to be careful. I mean, yeah, because when when I've done when I've covered the Indianapolis 500, um, one of the big things that we do is we always have all of us who are who are working it. We all have scanners. And we're all listening to the radio and we're all dialing up different people and we're all listening in in order to report back uh, on what's happening. So I mean, yeah, you're gonna have a lot of reporters too, not just fans, but reporters and media that are gonna be possibly listening to your to to your uh, radio communications at any time, so it'll be interesting to see if anything comes out of that. But the second one was a lot more. I don't know how you want to put this. I don't want to say funny because it's not really funny. It's more sad. I think to some people it was funny. It was more just wow. You know, it was more just like shocking. Yeah, it was shocking. You had to take a step back from it. So Natalie Decker had a very rough day on Thursday night, and it was magnified after audio. Of her spotter getting and and crew chief getting frustrated with her was um, released online um, in, in in a series of videos and in a series of tweets as well. You know, people were listening into her tweets uh, to her radio feed, and you know, so 
primarily what ended up happening was, I mean, I mean, you can pull up the video. I think it's it's like expletive Natalie Decker says or something um, on on YouTube. And essentially, what's going on is the first, it starts. The clip starts out with her uh, spotter just telling her there's a car inside, 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 and he's repeating inside multiple times. It feels like what forever, and then. He just gets so frustrated, he goes, inside, inside, we're wrecked, oh my gosh, you know, he was like really frustrated that that even happened, and, uh, and, 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 you know, and then the crew, the crew chief got into it, and he was, she's like, cars get a little tight, but I think it's getting better, and then he goes like, yeah, it's gonna be tight when you knock the whole right side off of it, like that, uh, and then, and then she, she had another incident where she, where she spun, and she was getting, um, she was getting a push from the tow truck, right? And so, I don't know, I feel terrible laughing about this, but what, what, where, where have I ever, when has this ever happened before? I have never heard a radio communication where a driver was so confused, and, and a crew chief, and her crew was so confused and lost, when have this, has this ever happened? I don't think this has ever happened. And so she's getting a push from the tow, from the tow truck, and she starts screaming on the radio. That the it's it's put pushing her too fast, so she starts holding the brake to slow the car down to slow the truck down, and and then she ends up getting spun by the the wrecker, and so everybody starts essentially laughing at her anyway because she just got spun up by the wrecker. Because when does that ever happen? When have you ever seen that happen? I mean, it, it wasn't like the wrecker was pushing her all that fast. I mean, the wrecker was honestly just pushing her into pit road. They were already on the apron of the racetrack, so. And she complained that the the that it was pushing her at like I think she said like eighty miles an hour like that. And I was like, and then and then and then it escalated uh, after after the grilling from her crew chief and spotter. Her spotter ended up with the most quotable sound bites. And at the very end of of it, he ends up quitting on her, or so it seems. It what the way the way it sounded was he was like, I have never seen this before in my life. I have never worked with a driver who just flat didn't listen to me. Um, I don't even, he was like, I don't even know why I'm up here. She's out. I'm done. I'm taking my crap off. Go. I'm going home later, guys. Like he, he looked like he needed a beer. He was going to go straight to the bar after the race and just have like two or three beers and just try and forget about the, ex the experience that he just had. So I was surprised by it. And it really honestly led me to the question of how in the world does Natalie Decker still have this ride? I mean, if, if, if we are in August, you know, we've been racing since February, right? And we are in August now, and you've got a driver that clearly doesn't listen and clearly doesn't know what they're doing out there and is confused and has, and I believe there was a statistic tweeted out that as of Bristol, this, when Natalie Decker has been in that 54 car truck, she has wrecked in every single race that she's been in or had some kind of incident. Not maybe, she's maybe finished the race, but she's caused a caution in some way. And it really pegs the question, if you look at DGR Crosley, they have very good trucks. You know, Tyler Ankrum is in the playoffs. I, I mean, he's won a race. Before. He's won a race, and he's showed speed. And they've got other. They've they've in, entered other cars that are obviously fast. They did it at, Eld at Eldora. Uh, they entered cars for drivers who clearly were fast. And it begs the question: What did Natalie Decker do to get here? I mean, how did this happen? How did we let this happen? 
Uh, and I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to be so harsh on Natalie because I don't, I feel like that's unfair criticism for her, for everybody to be piling on to her. But at the same time, it begs the question, seriously, how does this happen? How do we get into a situation where we have a driver that is this confused and is this lost on the racetrack and can't even listen to a spotter, can't even really listen to the crew chief? I, I have no idea. I mean, Josh, do you have any thoughts on this at all? Because I'm curious to hear what you have to say. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the thing that's the important to remember about the clip is that it's a t- one minute, 23 second clip, and that was from the entire race. Um, and it sounds like that was a, happened in a matter of two minutes, but in reality, it didn't. So it sounds a little worse than it did, but overall, it was just a bad, bad look on everyone's part. I don't, I think it's, I can get for the frustration. It's a heat of the moment deal, like we were talking about with Ross just saying everyone coming to, up to him after the race with their frustrations. Is it good for a spotter to quit on someone like that and be so so just bluntly honest? Probably not. Whether it's a young driver or older driver, an experienced driver, I don't think that's a good look on anyone's part. Um, but yeah, it it, it it now it's no secret now has had a rough year. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing, it's not always her fault on here. There's been a couple of wrecks recently where she was just an innocent victim, but other times it's like okay, she overdrove it. Okay, she shouldn't have made that move. She cleared herself. There's definitely been some problems there. I, I, I'm I'm not I don't know. I don't know. It was I cringe listening to that and I just I I I don't I think I laughed like dang that's that's bad. Like bad laugh. Like I don't think I laugh laughed, but I know she it, it, I, I would stay off social media if I was her. It's such not, a hard thing to talk about. It, 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 it's tough. I mean we can we, we know what we see on the track mm-hmm. and we see on T V and we can look up the stuff on racing reference, you know, we can look at that, but what, what's going actually on inside and what the discussions are. I mean, I, we don't know that. No one's talked about that. Yeah. So and like it, you it, mentioned, it was just a two minute clip. So, I mean, there's obviously way more to this than any of us probably know. I think the only people who know more are the people who actually work on that 54 truck. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's really a thing that we're, it's like talking about this is so difficult because you don't want to make it seem like, were overtly critical of Natalie Decker. And some people could... Obviously, people will do this everywhere because we've seen it... I've seen it way too many times in my lifetime. I'm sick of it. But people criticize her for her gender. And I don't think that's fair. I don't think it's fair at all. I think we've seen plenty of male drivers that are probably equally as clueless. I have no idea, you know, half of the drivers that maybe Spire Motorsports has run with, if they're even any better than Natalie. I don't know. You know, I haven't seen them. You know, that's that's the that's the thing where you don't want to overtly criticize someone and and then open that up to that because I've I've heard I've, I mean I listen to Danica Patrick's uh, audio or, or radio all the time when she was racing and it just seemed and and I could tell you know that eventually people start I think there's this stigma around people like that uh, not necessarily uh, maybe maybe uh, females in racing where there's this kind of a stigma where they don't pay attention or they don't learn very well and i think that could be a a possible answer to this i don't want to over i don't want to say something that may not be true i don't want to assume something and i don't want to come off as sexist but that's what other people are going to do. right other people are going to immediately say that because you know you read some of the comments on in about the the, the radio uh the radio audio and it's like everybody starts laughing at her and calling her like she's Danica or something. And I'm like, no, Danica was so much better than this. You know, Danica knew, Danica was, had a mind that was very, very, uh, mechanical. Um, 
Danica Patrick's knowledge of how a race car is set up and how things is, is like that is the reason why she always wanted to work with engineers because that's how she meshed well. She understood the, the communication from an engineer. If an engineer said one thing, then she'd be like, oh, I can understand that. I know what they're talking about, you know? And, and I think this is a situation where maybe Natalie just doesn't, she doesn't have that kind of level of knowledge yet. Um, and, and, you know, and, and Danica was a hothead in herself and she made, you know, rash moves and things like that. But for the most part, she knew what the goal was, you know, she knew what she was doing. And I don't know. I'm there was, going... There's, there's, it, it, to flip that, to go onto the guy side, there's guys who do that too. Oh, there's, there's guys, guys who do that all the time. Yeah. And, I mean, oh, for sure. Yeah. To put a bookmark on this or period on this. There's so much to it, and we got a small clip of it. And mm-hmm. unless you were listening to the entire radio, and you've listened to the entire radio on hers all year long, it's tough to make a, a fair assessment other than looking at the stats. Because as we like to say, stats don't tell the entire story. Right. All right. It only shows the results um, and how things finished. And, um, and, and, but, yeah. and yeah, she's made some mistakes. Other drivers made some mistakes. There's Macabre stuff that she has or that wasn't her making. Obviously, the Bristol was a really bad look um you know when you talk about getting spun by by a tow truck or a pusher and and then the when you hear that clip it just looks bad so um yeah well, I, I, mean, I, I don't know i don't yeah. know it's making it's making me speechless and i don't really know what to say i think it's tuesday it's tuesday now it this happened on thursday i mean we're, we're approaching here on almost a week since it's happened and nobody's Nobody at DGR Crosley said anything. As far as we know, Natalie Decker will be in the car uh, probably at least a couple of more times this year. I mean, at this point, there's not much more to talk about. I think we've, we've said of everything that we can. So I think we should move on now to our featured paint scheme of the week, uh, which is going to be the 2006 NASCAR Nextel Cup Series, uh, which was a very fun race series. I think it was the last... Uh, season where Fox and NBC split the broadcast. Uh, it was a last before uh, ESPN and TNT mm-hmm. took over in 2007. It was the last uh, season of NASCAR before the Car of Tomorrow came around. Um, it was the last uh, season where really, I mean, I, I think 2006 is kind of the cutoff of where NASCAR hit its popularity peak. I mean, some could say 2007 as well, but it, I've always said it's 2006. 2006, I think it peaked. Um, some people could debate that with me and that's okay, but I think we should go ahead here and, 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 and I'm going to say this one is so hard. I think this is so hard because there were so many beautiful paint schemes and NASCAR had just so many cars trying to make the field that year. I mean, you had so many teams, so many, I mean, I, I think Jack Roush had a sixth car they for, did, yeah. uh, Todd Cleaver at one point. The which 06, was, 3M yeah. Scotch, yeah. Oh, and I think David Reagan ran it at once as well. So, I mean, it, it, it's just... So many cars were in this season, so so many paint schemes to really pick from. You know, you could pick a, a one-off scheme, you could pick a, a pay, primary scheme, you could pick a special scheme. I went ahead and uh, and and picked um, one that I have fond memories with. I could have picked Casey Kane because that was one of Casey Kane's best seasons, if not his best season. Period. Uh, so, as a Casey Kane fan in 2006, I was ecstatic. Um, but. I went ahead and picked a, a car that ran uh, during Casey Kane's first win of 2006, which was at the Atlanta Spring Race, the Golden Corral 500, 
and it would be Bill Lester's number 23 waste management dodge for Bill Davis Racing. Now, at the Atlantic Spring Race, Lester will qualify 19th on debut, and fin- but finish a disappointing 38th. Uh, interesting enough, though, nine cars failed to qualify for the event, making Lester's qualifying attempt in what was essentially a R&D Bill Davis car even more impressive. So 19th, and, and, and he out-qualified a number of decent cars. I believe the 32 car even failed to make that race. So if you're telling me the nine cars failed to qualify, 43 car fields, so there was uh, 52 cars yep. at that race, and you've qualified 19th. I say job well done. Yes, exactly. And, and, and Lester, uh, but and um, Lester would make one more start in that car at Michigan, and he would finish a best career race and finish in the Cup Series at 32nd. Uh, but then he failed to qualify for the fall race at California because he spun on his qualifying lap. Um, but I've always had an odd affinity for the second Bill Davis entry because whenever he ran a second car, I really love those schemes and and usually the drivers too. I really like the drivers. I think in '04, I think he ran a car for Shane Meal a couple of times, and at the time, I and and still to an extent nowadays, I still appreciate Shane Meal's uh, talent level. Uh, I think he was would have been a fantastic talent level in USAC and probably ended up in IndyCar. Um, uh, but I always liked that, and then. I think in 2005, Mike Skinner ran an Argent Mortgage-sponsored car, which was incredibly cool-looking because you'd seen the cars in, like, an Indy car, like IRL cars, because Ray Hall Letterman cars ran that with Danik Patrick and Buddy Rice. But then seeing the kind of that kind of idea scheme move over to NASCAR was really cool at the time. But I was a big supporter of Bill Lester back then when he was in the truck series as well. Uh, I was a big fan of Bill Lester. Him, him, Bill Lester, Steve Park, and Brendan gone in the truck series back in like 04, 05, 06 was really cool. Um, and, uh, but I loved seeing the green, white, and yellow waste management car on the track. And I believe I still have that race on tape somewhere because it was delayed to Monday due to rain. And uh, I had to be in school because I was in fourth grade at that time. So... Uh, anyway, yeah, that that's my featured paint scheme. Josh, how about yours? Yeah, uh, I'm going to go with Jeff Gordon's DuPont uh, Performance Alliance Chevrolet. And in fact, I got it right here with me. I brought my 164th scale uh, die cast of it, and I just I just love this paint scheme. Uh, I love It was an inverse. So, you know, J- Gordon drove the blue base, orange flames, you know, from 01 to 08. Well, this was an inverse of that, so it was an orange base with blue flames. Um, he ran it in the All-Star race uh, only uh, that year, and he only, and he actually ran it from 05, 06, and 07, the same scheme in the All-Star race, so DuPont was perfor- or performing, uh, promoting their Performance Alliance brand in those races. Um, he finished third in that race behind second place Kevin Harvick and winner Jimmy Johnson. Um and I just I liked it. I got the I got the 05 diecast uh, in the 124 scale at the 05 Brickyard 400, and I, I can't remember. I can usually tell you when I got each one of these cars. I'm pretty sure I got this car in Tennessee that I'm hold, that the diecast I'm holding. I just always liked it. I like the orange. Orange my favorite color. So uh, I was kind of hoping that one day this would be like a primary scheme. Of his, because it just looks so cool. I, I just love, I love holding it. Like uh, I'm looking like a little kid right now. And uh, plus, yeah, for those who can't see, because obviously we're doing a podcast. Josh right now is he has the actual diecast, the 164 scale diecast of this car. He's holding it in his hands while he's describing it. Yeah. So and, and plus the 06 when when Chevrolet came and changed the Monte Carlo's design, and it really was a lot of it was just the the front end of the car. 
the headlights on this just look nice. It's mm-hmm. a highlight sticker, but the 06, 07, and 08 um, Monte Carlo SS that Chevrolet ran, that was, other than the 2001, oh, 2000, 2001, 2002 Monte Carlo, was probably my favorite, and it was definitely an improvement over the 03, 04, and 05 models. So it just looks better on this car, my, set of my, my own personal opinion. So i um, glad I picked that one. So I'm glad you picked that one too because I always like talking about paint schemes from you know '04 to '06 because those were really good. I don't know what it was in those three years that just made those paint schemes fantastic. I, I mean, I shouldn't say. I think the second best one though, at post that era was probably like 2009 had some of the best paint schemes too. Um, but that's but that's that. Uh, so I think we should move on now to. Talking about the Xfinity Series race, the Food City 300 at Bristol again. Tyler Reddick wins the Food City 300 after Justin Allgaier had a flat tire with 11 to go. Uh, That blew my mind. Didn't expect that to happen, but it ended up happening. Three Cup Series contenders who were running in the Xfinity Series race had uh, a series of issues. Um, So first of all, by the way, I want to make a note that Eric Jones' car was awesome. It looked cool. And I'm ultra, ultra sad that it got wrecked. Because Eric Jones and Joey Logano got uh, wrapped up in a lap 38 caution when Cole Custer and Christopher Bell tangled off turn four. Now, they were trying to pass Matt Mills a lap car. Uh-huh. And it didn't work out. Yeah. And and then they spun, and it collected Jones and Logano. Jones just came plowing in there. Logano, neither of them had anywhere to go, unfortunately. Um, and, and that IK981, I don't know what it is about seeing... Like R and D car, like cars, like, and I and, and and I'm sorry, I don't want to mean to get off on a tangent here for a real quick second, but when I mentioned the Bill Lester car, like those R and D, those like one off entries with those weird odd numbers that are like inverses or one up number above of what people usually run, those are so cool to me because they're so interesting. Yeah, they're so interesting. So seeing a number eighty one car out there being a Joe Gibbs car run extreme. by Eric Jones was just really yeah. cool for some reason. Yeah. I don't know why it was as cool as it was, but uh, I, I liked that a lot. Um, and, and, but anyway, so uh, and then Kyle Busch uh, was was in this race. So and, and obviously, whenever Kyle Busch is in an Xfinity Series race, I mean he's the favorite to win. Uh, so he won stage two. But while winning stage two, his engine was blowing up. And so he won stage two. He got the, I mean, no stage points or anything, but he, he's got the stage win, not that it matters, uh, and and then ended up just having to take it right behind the that wall. That was the strangest thing I've ever seen. And I tweeted, like, this is the this is the weirdest thing I've seen since when Carl Edwards rear-ended um, Ricky Stenhouse Jr. <laughs> for the win at Iowa. Yeah, that, that, that one even then was weird. That one was crazy. Have you ever seen someone blow an engine get... R- just ran in through, ran through, and win the race? No. Have you ever seen a guy blow the engine coming out of turn four on the last lap? That's true. Well, yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't want to speak some of the mid-pack or rear-end field cars, but I've never seen a leader do it. Yeah, I've never, never seen, seen a, a leader, leader do, do it, it, for sure. Like, a guy coming to the checkered flag about to win the race, and then the engine blows. Yeah. And in this case, Kyle Busch is going out there for two, three laps. His engine is exploding, is literally giving away, is falling apart underneath him, and he's still winning the stage. And then all of a sudden he's like, all right, I won the stage. i got to take it behind the wall now. I think some people thought it was a, a, a tire rub. Mm-hmm. And then 
we didn't see a good angle. Then all of a sudden, car slowed down. The angle gets on. Like, oh, that's coming out of the tailpipes. Yeah. That's that's, a, that's. I a thought terminal. it was a tire rub too. And I got on Twitter, and I was on Twitter at the time because I was looking at it, and I was like, oh my gosh, Kyle Busch, he's got a tire rub or something. And I look on Twitter, and then someone posted his um, radio communication. He's like, "Hey, dude, I'm blowing up," and I'm like, "What?" <laughs> yeah, that that would stink. Hey, you know, get, get, he 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 didn't just pull. He was like, "I want to win a stage. Yeah. I'm going to win the stage. I'm gonna I'm gonna win it." And and he did. Um, I guess when it shifted down, mm-hmm. it that's when it finally went kablooey kind oh, of deal. I bet. Um, um, so Bristol is like Talladega, Daytona, or road courses. The small teams have an opportunity to shine, and that is exactly what some teams did. And this was this is we're gonna talk. About, I'm impressed with some of these guys. Uh, Jeremy Clements finished fourth, his first top five since his 2017 victory at Road America. Gray Galding finished sixth, which you know, and I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, oh, there's no way Gray Galding is gonna make the playoffs at this point. And I'm like, hmm. points made up. Hmm, now, keep doing that, and it might be close for 12th. <laughs> um, Timmy Hill was 7th in a Carl Long Hitori Racing Enterprises Toyota, which I didn't expect Timmy Hill. I was like, I saw a hill in there, and I was like, oh, they run an Austin Hill. No, it's Timmy Hill. What the? Okay. Um, and so, uh, and then uh, Landon Castle finishes 10th for JD Motorsports. Uh, and Ryan Sieg, uh, in the Lombard Bros gaming car, uh, had been running in the top five and top ten, but hit a wall and finished hit the wall and finished twenty fifth. Yeah, Sieg was that he had a, he was running second place. He, oh, I know. He had been passed and then he hit the wall, and I was like, oh man, because that's just one of those good feel good stories again, kind of of the weekend and of the year to see them running as well as they have been and the improvements they've made amongst, you know, the the, the big dogs. I mean, yeah, series. if you look at Ryan Sieg and you look at what's on the sponsor of his car, Lombard Bros Gaming, I mean, the dude is literally sponsored by a, a brother, two brothers who do YouTube videos. And yet, he's out there running second. Like, he's got no major, major, major corporate sponsor or anything. And this dude's out here running second. True grit. I mean, yeah, that is that was impressive, and, and Ryan Sieg deserves so much more credit than he gets because he's con- he's always up there, you know. I mean, he's in contention for like playoff positions too most of the time. I mean, he could get a win somewhere. I don't know where, but he could like. See- and that's the thing about Ryan Sieg is he could win anywhere. Like it, people mostly think, oh, well, you know, he's probably going to win at Daytona Talladega or something. But no, like the way Ryan Seek has driven, he could easily win anywhere. Yeah, the day has to become more perfect for him, mm-hmm. but he's shown speed everywhere. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, so other highlights were Brandon Brown was in 12th, uh, Shane Lee was in 13th, Ray Black Jr. was in 15th, and J.J. Yaley was in 16th. That was in the 93 car, J.J. Yaley. Yeah, it was, that was, he was yeah. running for, um, is Jeff Green still out for the? He's recovering from surgery, I think. Yeah. And so JJ Yaley to to go out there and run run sixteenth was pretty cool, especially since he couldn't go out there and run eight laps down in the Slayer car on on, on Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was good to see. Um, you know, attrition helps this. There was a plenty of attrition. You know, Kyle Busch out, Joey Logano certainly would have been up Christopher there. Bell Christopher Bell and Cole Custer. Uh, yeah. So you, in, in Eric Jones, I think some people were pointing at him as a guy who might have been the guy car to beat that race. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm just looking at the top five here, and I'm just like, oh, in, I mean, Reddick, Briscoe, Hunter Nemechek, and Clements and Sindrick. I mean, yes, that's not a normal top five for the for the Xfinity series. I mean, Reddick and Briscoe, yeah, probably, 
but Sindrick on a non-road course, Jeremy Clements, and John Hunter Nemechek. I mean, that's pretty impressive, because, I mean, I mean, not to take anything away from John Hunter, but, you know, he's not usually running top five, he's usually but, running top ten. I think you're not giving Cindric enough credit, though. He's he improved, but mm-hmm. you like, I think here, tonight, yeah, I think that's a little bit of a shocker, but Hunter Nemechek, the way they've been running, and he's a rookie full-time this year, but Clements, yeah, I think Clements, and he was running third, and then mm-hmm. he got passed with a couple laps to go, so I think it's kind of low-key, we are like, man, cool to see him get a third place finish there and let's take a time here to, to, to say that you know you mentioned you know junior motorsports just had one issue after another and it looked like all got hurt. but obviously we're all very happy Dale Earnhardt Jr. the wife Amy daughter Isla the two pilots uh, and their dog mm-hmm. are okay after that plane crash my um, gosh I that mean, was terrifying you, you thought you were going to have you know all just all right everything's going to be okay kind of deal um, with the win, and then just to see it all come, it's just like that would have been great to see them get a victory. And and while Junior wouldn't have been there in the booth, who's at home where he should have been, you know, you know, recuperating. However, you know, just spend time with family because that's what that's what's most important after an, an incident like that. So, uh, but it would have been good to see that happen. And all guy are obviously wanting to get that first win of the year, just to just to have that tire go flat. And he he got the restart he needed there at the end, and it just didn't work out. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what were your thoughts on that on that race? Because you, you mentioned how it kind of yeah, it was up. it was very an interesting race, and I enjoyed watching it a lot. And but I, I didn't want to take away. I did want to say the same thing. I echo your statements that I'm very happy that Dale Jr. is okay. I'm very happy that his entire family is okay. Everybody involved in that situation was okay because that's that's always terrifying. I mean, when, you, when I mean Brad Keselowski was talking about it, you know, you. He had a great point. He had a great point where you know you got to fly everywhere because you know you got to maximize time. You got to maximize time with your kids. You got to maximize time with your family. Well, he you had know. like a really good point. It's a three-hour yeah. drive from Charlotte to Bristol, but it's a twenty-minute flight. And that's I can be home. Uh, I, I can wake up at six. Wake right. Everyone be a little grumpy, or I can wake up at nine, and you know everyone be all right, and I can see kids all. I mean, you're home. gonna be driving all day anyway. Do you really want to be driving three hours? I yeah. mean, nobody wants to do. You want to be psyching yourself up prepping yourself for a race you want to be able to focus you want yeah. to be able you just be able to you know enjoy the weekend and things like that you'd rather fly when it's a lot quicker and you can get there faster but yeah but yeah i thought the race overall was very interesting uh because you know like we talked about in the truck series race it was kind of a more of a low line fest where the pj1 traction compound uh really looked like it was that i mean that bottom lane that was where people wanted to be and and as the xfinity series race went on it looked like it was a little bit more equal where sometimes the top side was good, sometimes it wasn't. Most of the time, the bottom side was was perfect, but you know sometimes the top lane came in, depending on how long the run had gone. Where and all of a sudden it was like, oh, okay, now people are being able to make moves on the top now. Okay, so we're seeing this kind of stuff now. So it was interesting because you were still seeing guys bump and run each other on the bottom lane when the top lane wasn't fully in. But when the top lane started to come in after a little while into a long run, you know guys could. Guys could pretty much go out there and start and start to make some pretty de- decent moves, pretty decent passes. Um, guys could defend a, a lot better as well. So it was just an interesting race. It wasn't. It, it felt like a kind of a medium of where the three races were, where the Truck Series was a, a low line fest, the Cup Series was a good solid mix of both high line and low line, but the Xfinity Series was sometimes the high line is good, but most of the time the bottom line is where you want to be. Yeah, I think. The PJ one because they sprayed it every day, mm-hmm. so the PJ one hadn't completely worn out. So and then the heat and the tires. You talk about their long runs or short runs. That will dictate that where your car's handling the best. And as we see with going into the Cup race, 
you're talking about 200 more laps, so you got 200 more laps of PJ one wear in rubber on the high side. And plus, you know, where where are you liking your car? Where's your car setup at? Um, and and we, it just more was compounded more. It was amazing to see the difference though in 100 laps. Oh yeah, and, for sure. From from the from Thursday night to Friday night. So let's move on to the cup race now. Yeah, we should really yeah. start talking about the yeah. cup race because yeah. I feel like a lot of people are talking about this. A lot of people are. Denny Hamlin won the Bass Pro Shops NRA Night Race at Bristol when he passed a certain driver with 12 laps to go. Uh, and it was uh, that driver who stole the show, though. That second-place guy won the hearts. He was the story. Matt DiBenedetto was the winner in the fans' heart of that race. And so let's talk about Matt DiBenedetto's week. You know, he found out on Tuesday, hey, bud, you're not returning to the 95. That stinks. Mm-hmm. I mean, how we, I, mean, how, I don't know. I, not too many people can handle that really well, particularly when last year he had a ride for this year with Go Fast Racing. He says, I'm not coming back. I want to bet on myself. I want to go to a place where I can win races or have a better shot at winning races. And he was picked up by Levine Family Racing. They get this new alliance with Toyota. And I didn't know this. I don't know if anyone had talked about it. But I believe it was Steve Lutart who said, hey, Wheeler walk- Mike Wheeler, his crew chief, walked into Levine Family in December. They had no cars. So we talk about a slow start. Yeah, you're two months away from the day 2500. You don't have any cars getting set up. Yeah, I, I, it's amazing they ran as well as they did at Daytona, but that explains the slow start from February to May where they weren't running very well. But over since May, they've ran really, really well. He's progressively picked it up. He got a best career finish uh, at Sonoma. Then he got a he topped his best career finish here tonight. He's got more top fives. He got all his top fives, actually, his career this year, and he's doubled his top tens this year. Mm-hmm. He's had a career year. Levine Family Racing is having a career year for their organization and i and then to compile that he's been doing this when he's had eric jones and christopher bell's name swirling around his head from the media for two months at the least so we talked about this a few weeks ago you had basically two two seats to fill and you're one of those three names that are being you know swirled around to fill it we can debate why he wasn't chosen to stay there or why a six car wasn't created uh for him at some position but he's not there he's not going to be there next year toy he won't be look racing a toyota it looks like next year so he comes to bristol and he walks out first off in a rocky and <laughs> a rocky I'm like this is awesome dude and then he, he just he's like i'm not even going to introduce myself i can let Let's people just know who he is. Yeah. People know who I am, and then they kind of like, hey, you gotta say, you gotta say who you are. And that was so cool. Like that set the tone for the night because he went out there, drove the race of his life. Um, red. I, I mean, that dude was literally Rocky Balboa. Yes. I mean, it didn't have the Rocky finish that maybe some people would have expected, but not every Rocky movie ends with Rocky winning, right? Nope. No, and and, and he went out there, took the lead. He didn't like. I mean, some say, "Well, Eric Jones wrecks." Like he's gonna pass Eric Jones. No, he he was he, going to pass. He had Eric. the fastest car there at towards the end of the. He race. was going to pass. He was passing the car mm-hmm. that had a guy who basically kept him from getting keeping the ninety five ride. I'm sorry, but that's what happened. Mm-hmm. He passed the guy. He needed to pass the pass and prove like, hey, y'all didn't take another look at me. The leads ninety three laps, right? Ninety three laps, and and that's more laps than he's led in his entire career uh, at any race. I think. He has 163 laps now in his career. So he led quite a bit to, to up that number. And then 
we can talk about the Newman incident, what we want, you know. But Newman, on that side, we got to know the discussion for here in a second. But he finishes second, gets out of the car, clearly is emotional, all right? And he kept it together really well on, on TV, I thought. And, and he says, I, I, I don't want to go anywhere. I'm going to win. I'm going to stick around for a long time. And he's trying to hold back his tears. It was tough for me. Like, this is tough to watch mm-hmm. because you're feeling that right now. He's the story. Who cares? Denny Hamlin, great. You got the fourth one of the year. Whatever. Does great. anybody care? Great. No. <laughs> Denny Hamlin gets out of the car and apologizes. Oh, man, that's the first thing he says. He, I'm yeah, that sorry. Was... <laughs> He, he doesn't to think apologize FedEx. to the whole fans. Yeah, I, I, He's he, like, "Hey guys, I know you guys wanted to see Matty D win. Yeah. I'm sorry I passed him, but I had to win the race. I'm sorry, everyone." And and the, here's the thing that really gets me: that crowd. What'd you say about eighty percent full? Oh yeah, uh, at, at least extent. eighty, eighty-five percent yeah. full. It was no. a beautiful crowd for Bristol, especially in like post you know, 2010 standards. Yeah, so in, in that's great. 160,000 seats is a little tough to fill up. That's more than any NFL stadium or college football stadium, so take that. Um, you're, if we can get 100 and, I don't know how many, again, I don't 80% of 160. I'm not good at math. No, I'm uh, not, not good at math post-7th grade. So that's a lot of people there, though, still. And when he gets on the TV radio, uh, or uh, TV radio, the track radio, you got Hannah Newhouse there. The crowd just lights up yep. and cheering and is cheering and is cheering, and he has to take a moment and and says I'm, I'm good. I'm like, and he wasn't 100 percent good. It was like it, that was even more difficult to watch. And and uh, Jeff Clark posted a video of the of the video board, and the fans lighting up. He was the guy everyone wanted to win that race. And to so kind of segue, you know. We, we talked about it. This was the place where I had opportunities for, for small teams to do well, and that was that small team. So, But Denny Hamlin, on Denny Hamlin's defense, he didn't just – he stole the win, but he earned the win too at the same time because he was involved in a wreck early, got doored, went a lap down, had to fight his way back through. So good for him. I mean, he earned the win in a – you know, we, we can't we can't underestimate that. Um, but, you know, still, Matt Benedetto sold the show. One note I wanted to say, we're starting to see – a couple familiar names on up front. Chase Elliott, Ryan Blaney, and Kyle Larson, I think, will be the next generation of guys to watch at Bristol. They're constantly running up front now. So you know, we had the Rusty Wallaces, the Jeff Gordons, and now we kind of moved into the Joey Logano's, Kurt Bushes, and Kyle Bushes of, of the world. I think they're going to be the next guys who kind of are going to be the ones to watch. So, um, you know, we talked about the track changing conditions. Apparently, there had been some grinding done mm-hmm. on the top lane. They weren't in, drivers and teams weren't informed. Denny Hamlin criticized them for you know lack of communication. However, I think we saw maybe the best Bristol race at least in a couple years. What do, what do you think? Yeah, I loved that Bristol race. I thought it was a really really fun race to watch from a spectator's point. Um, obviously, you wanted Matt DeBeno to win the race. I think a lot of people who aren't Denny Hamlin fans, wanted to see Matt DiBenedetto win that race. I think everyone in the closing laps of that race is a Matt DiBenedetto fan unless mm-hmm. you're wearing FedEx gear. I mean, I mean that's the thing. I, I mean, like, I'm sitting here. I, got, I don't have a dog. I feel like I don't have a dog in the fight in really Cup Series or really NASCAR anymore because, you know, I, first of all, I, I'm trying to be unbiased. You, you know, you're, you you want to put on this idea that, okay, I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a journalist. You know, I don't really want to pick sides and take but it makes it easier when you know Casey Kane's not racing anymore so for me I'm sitting there and I'm like well you know it wouldn't be bad to see his old car win 
you know, wouldn't be, that wouldn't be too bad, you know, to show people that, yeah, he could have won probably last year or something, go around up front. Uh, and so I was sitting there just like a nervous wreck, you know, and I, I hadn't been a nervous wreck like that in a while, probably since I was watching Alex Bowman. You know, when you see these yeah. guys, guys who haven't won before, I feel like that's just what what, what fans want to see. We want to see guys who haven't won before. We want to see guys who haven't won a lot. You know, I feel like if Jimmy Johnson won like next week, nobody would nobody would really be upset. Everybody would probably be really happy. You know, to see Jimmy Johnson win a race again. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's just what happens when guys don't win a lot or guys who have never won a race get into a position where they can win a race. Fans want them to win the race. And so, you know, you get to that point where it was very frustrating. And I think we could talk about this. We should probably start talking about this now um, because we've got a long show today and we've got a lot to talk about. And I think this is something that we do need to discuss now. So the Ryan Newman incident. Yes. Where where I'm watching that and I'm thinking from a couple of different standpoints here. I'm just thinking of a couple of different standpoints. So one point that was brought up was that Ryan Newman is racing for a spot in the playoffs, and he knows darn well that if a new guy wins a race, there's a very good chance, considering the fact that he's just barely on the cut line, that he could get bumped out of the playoffs because of that. He's got to do everything in his power to make sure that that doesn't happen, and if that means a little bit of contact with Matty D, I guess that's that's what he's going to do. Now, me personally, I get it. I get why he did it. I would not have done it. I would not have done it. And I don't, maybe Newman didn't do it on purpose, but I probably would have just given him the position. I, or I just given him the spot. And, you know, you're, you're a lap down. You're not. He's not a lap for, down yet. He's trapped. I right, stay on was, the lead lap. You're, you're about to go a lap down. The race is in its closing stages. I mean, unless there's a caution, what are you going to gain from it? And even then, you're probably going to be the lucky dog. Probably you could take a wave around or something like that. But he decides, he's like, no, I'm going to fight him. I'm going to fight him. And. That's what ends up happening, is he just bumps into him, and then Matty D said after the race, yeah, as soon as that contact happened, the car just got way too tight, and I wasn't as fast as I was. Because Matty D could probably easily have held off Denny Hamlin the entire the entire rest of the race had that contact not happened. And then on, the, on, on another standpoint, you know, we talked about the Newman looking at the playoffs, looking at the big, big picture here. Okay, you door slam a guy doing out of the back straight away, kind of prevent him from winning the race. If you're Denny Hamlin, though, this is a thought for me, is, is we've seen Ryan Newman be able to go deep in the playoffs before without a win. Mm-hmm. If you're, if I'm Denny Hamlin, and maybe, and, and I don't know if anyone else is thinking this way. I, I doubt anyone else is thinking this way. I don't think race car drivers think this way. But if I'm maybe like a crew chief or, you know, or, or, or an owner or something, I'm thinking this, is, hey, this 95 car probably might not be a huge threat in the long run of the playoffs. Like, they could probably get in the playoffs. They might advance one round or two, but probably not going to go to Homestead, right? Just not, not not because he's not good enough, but probably because he's not going to rack off another, like, four or five wins, right? Like Denny Hamlin could. Um, so I'm watching that, and I'm thinking, well, yeah, just if I'm Denny Hamlin, yeah, just let him win. Then he's taken away... A playoff spot from some guy, some other guy who could be a bigger, bigger threat to me, like Jimmy Johnson, like Ryan Newman, or or something like that. You know, those guys could be bigger threats. Like I, I don't know, I don't know what could happen to Jimmy Johnson. Like I said, he could go out and win next next week, and then then people will start talking. You know, Jimmy Johnson is still Jimmy Johnson. I mean, he's had bad luck, but he could still win a race and he could still go deep in the playoffs if you know the stars align for him. 
um, which they haven't been. And I'm not going to say that, I mean, luck isn't a, a, a deal with that, but that's, that's still think, I still think that that could have been a possibility. But obviously, nobody's thinking like that. So when you're going into a situation like this and you're really thinking big picture playoffs, you know, there's a bunch of different ways you could look at things. I think what Ryan Newman did was not the best thing in the world, though. Because I think the worst thing you want to do as a car that's either a lap down or about to be lapped is affect the outcome of the race. And Ryan Newman affected the outcome of the race. I mean, that's like the number one rule in all of racing is I feel like when you're about to go a lap down, you need to make sure that you don't, you can defend that position, you can defend your lap, but you also need to try to not affect the outcome of the race. And that's exactly what Ryan Newman did. He affected the outcome of the race. And granted, it may have, I don't know, there's still like two races left till the playoffs. So maybe it benefited him. Maybe it won't. Maybe he has a two terrible races at Darlington in Indianapolis, and he ends up just having taken this win away from Matt E.D. for nothing. I don't know what the future is going to hold, but, you know, like I said, right Newman, we're looking at the playoff points right now. I mean, he is right on the cusp. He is... 14. He's 14 to the good over the cutoff. Yeah, he's he's 14 to the good over the cutoff. He's running 15th, 14 points ahead of Daniel Suarez. Clint Boyer and Jimmy Johnson are still there. I'm not going to count out either of those guys. I'm not even gonna count out Suarez for to to, to leapfrog him, you know, um, you know. But you know, it, Ryan Newman, may, I don't I don't think he needed that. Nobody really asked Ryan Newman. I don't think after the race about the contact. I think most people were talking about talking to Maddie D about the contact. Yeah. Well, you knew you probably knew the answer was going to be, and I think you've touched on a couple things. If you don't mind me inter, inter, yeah, go for it. Absolutely. Just, oh, sorry. So let's let, let's let's back up to your first point. Racing him hard and kind of mixing with the point you just made. And that's being kind of courteous, don't affect the outcome of the race. You know, what he did, I think most drivers would probably say is, that's that's okay, lap lap 50. You're Kyle Busch, I'm going to fight not to go a lap down because it's too early in a race to get into trouble. All right? We can't we can't be behind the eight ball. And we've seen Kyle Busch and, and Denny Hamlin kind of demonstrated got behind the eight ball early and came back and, and, win, and win races at Bristol. But it's difficult to do. Um, and when you're in that Rosh Fenway equipment, it's not Joe Gibbs equipment right now, but you know, and you're on the, on the cusp of the playoffs. So he's fighting hard. He's fighting hard. I don't want to go a lap down because if there is a last, if there's a late caution, he's going to restart eighth. And he's going to be on the high side at the end. We saw the highest side was the best line to be in. Mm-hmm. So he might be able to get a top five. That's three more points. Those three points could be uber valuable in, 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 in these next two races. So, from that standpoint, I get it. But at the uh, kind of going the outcome of the outcome of the race, okay, if there is a late race restart, you know, let's let's kind of be courteous to not affecting the outcome of the race. You're talking about 11, you know, 20 laps to go. The contact gets made. He eventually gets past, or uh, Benedetto gets past Newman, but the contact's been made. The damage is done. Hamlin gets past him. Um, and then you kind of brought up a good point that I was going to bring up was he didn't even fight Hamlin. He just let Hamlin go. That was the most un-Newman thing I've ever seen Newman do. Because track position, even though you're a lap down and you're between first and second place, counts because, okay, that's one less car I have to get past, potentially, to pass the guy to be in the free pass position. And Newman just let him go because he's thinking, wait, if Hamlin wins, if if Hamlin wins this, De Benedetto doesn't win, doesn't mean he doesn't jump from twenty 
third, 24th in the playoff or in the, in the standings to now 10th. And now the good news is kind of for Newman though, he would be the cutoff driver if this, you know, we're kind of playing, you know, not really messing with the points here. So if DiBenedetto would have won, that means you're not racing for 16th, you're racing for 15th now because you got a guy who's outside the top 16 who's won a race. So Newman would be 15th and on the cutoff and would have a, uh, let me do the math here, 12-point advantage over Daniel Suarez instead of having a 14th advantage over Clint Boyer. So that's the difference in his mind of what was, what was happening. Um, I'm sure that's why you let Hamlin go. Like I'm sure he's maybe spotter creeps are like, dude, yeah, let Hamlin go, let Hamlin go, let Hamlin go, and fight to Benedetto, fight to Benedetto, fight to Benedetto. It was rough, and he's caught a lot of flack. I think I saw people mention, hey, another another first win stolen by Hamlin. I think a lot of people like did like Chase Elliott pictures of Dover. I'm like, okay, but that's everyone knows in the garage area. Newman's the hardest guy to pass, mm-hmm. and he lived up to that reputation, right or wrong. I can't blame him either way or or say one way is right or the other you know for us you know you talk about trying not to be unbiased you cheer for the best story the best story would have been i think the best story still was about de benedetto because to come up there and go second even if it he lost and even if he would just finish second didn't even get the first it was that was the story that everyone would have been cheering for and the crowd let you know it mm-hmm. yeah i feel bad for for matt de benedetto but he took it in stride he didn't blame newman whether he did or does or you know, or doesn't deep down. Matt's a racer, and he's going to go out there and grind what he's done all year long. And um, watch out, Richmond, Martinsville, and Talladega, because those are the those are the next, I think, best opportunities for the ninety five. But then again, like I said earlier, since May, that car's been running better and better and better and better. Maybe he can go up there and still win at a mile and a half track or a track we wouldn't expect the small team to do well. And also, side note, he's doing it in generation old equipment too. So uh, he doesn't have the same stuff Furniture Row had for the past three seasons under uh, under him. So Joe Gibbs, <laughs> it's kind of like a good try and mm-hmm. good try. And but yeah, uh, my goodness, we could well, we again. There's a couple topics today we could just rant on all day long, but we're but we won't. We said I said my piece. Have you said your piece? Right. I've got we've got other rants we've got to get to, especially yeah. with this Indy car race we've got to talk about. Yeah. And and I think. We're at the hour point now, so we're 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 gonna go a little bit longer. So you're getting a little bit of a bonus Robin Roller today, um, and so so enjoy this. Uh, so we're gonna talk about the IndyCar series, the ABC Supply 500 at Pocono, what could be the last race at Pocono for the foreseeable future for IndyCar, um, due to just I mean the the contract expired. They're still in negotiations. There's been some rumors that Richmond could take over uh, the, the 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 spot, but you know I think the 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 people of Pocono are, are pretty, pretty intent to get IndyCar back because the crowd on Sunday was actually a really good crowd for IndyCar, and it's been getting bigger and bigger each year. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. But that that the reason why we talk about that is because a first lap accident sets the tone for the race and fan discussions. Takuma Sato, Alexander Rossi, and Ryan Hunter a tangle and collect Felix Rosenquist and James Hinchcliffe uh, on the first lap. Going down the long pond straight into the tunnel turn, uh, Sato, Rossi, Hunter Ray, and Hinchcliffe were checked and released from the infield care center. Rosenquist was sent to a nearby trauma center for further evaluations, but he was okay. Uh, he was later released. I mean, nobody really thought that Rosenquist was. I didn't think he was, up and was walking injured. around too. Yeah, I think he was okay. Um, and uh, so he tweeted after he got. He said, 
Quote, just got cleared from the hospital. Definitely feel lucky escaping without any serious injuries after the visiting catch fence there. Good to see Scott Dixon back from the championship hunt on to Gateway next weekend. Fish bump emoji, hashtag NTT data racing, hashtag Pocono. Drivers were upset, involved in the wreck or not, and Simon Pagino didn't even want to watch or simply and simply concentrate on his car. Don't blame him. I would have done the same thing. When there's an accident that, accident that happens... If I'm a race car driver, I don't want to know about the accident. I don't care. I'll, I don't even want to know about it after the fact. I just want to go and do my do my work, do do my job. Um, Alexander Rossi, James Hinchcliffe, Ryan Hunter Ray uh, managed to repair their cars. Don't know how that happened. I because don't know how that the, happened. All, all those cars were destroyed. Well, I can tell you how they happened. They did it under the red flag. Well, yeah, they did do it under the red flag, and all were given a 10-lap penalty for working under the red flag. Um, the minimum for this penalty was two laps. I did read, actually, that there was a clarification on why they were penalized 10 laps. Um, and the main reason for that was because uh, that was the amount of time that they spent illegally working on their car under the red flag. So that amount of time that they were doing that equated to 10 laps on track. So they just penalized them, essentially, the amount of time that they were working on the car illegally under the red flag. That still seems pretty low, though. I mean, they, they ended up stopping, so they and they didn't even get their cars ready until like about well, well past halfway of the race. So, yeah. um, but anyway, so Simon Pagano led the most laps. Scott Dixon led in the late stages, but it was Will Power who won the race after the race was red flagged for incoming weather and uh, eventually got called. Now, this was a first win since Gateway last season and continues a streak of winning races of of winning seasons thirteen. And it is Power's third win in four years at Pocono and his 36th career victory, uh, breaking the, a tie for seventh with Bobby Unser for all-time wins. Now, with three races remaining in the uh, NTT IndyCar Series, the point standings are as this. Joseph Newgarden has a 35-point lead over Alexander Rossi, but he only has a 40-point lead over Simon Pagano, so only five points separate Pagano and Rossi. Whereas Dixon is a little bit further back, he's 52 back from Newgarden. So the points... I mean, it's close. It's still close. Rossi lost uh, lost a lot of points, but being able to get out there and, and at least, you he know... He got a couple positions he, back. He gained a few positions, so that's more points for Rossi, so that was definitely necessary for him. And it really came close. That red, that, that caution and red flag came one mm-hmm. lap shy of him gaining another position. Right. So Rossi really... I mean, Rossi and that whole Andretti team did exactly what they had to do um, in order to get that car uh, in, in the... get get as many points as they could. Um, and so, I think the biggest story that we're going to talk about and has to be the reaction to the lap one accident, the reaction and the subsequent calls and controversy of Pocono. Um, so Scott Dixon told Motorsport.com that he feel, feels bad for Pocono and said, "What's happened to uh, Justin Wilson and Robert Wickens can happen anywhere." Will Power echoed Dixon saying that those types of accidents can happen anywhere. Other drivers were kind of echoing it. Ed Carpenter said the same kind of idea where these kinds of accidents can happen anywhere. Whereas, you know, and I think Sebastian Bourdais was also very adamant. So very, a lot of a lot of veterans were saying that these kinds of races can accidents can happen anywhere. And and, and I think that's it's interesting to look at the people who were saying who are pro Pocono, at least the, from a driver's standpoint, the people mm-hmm. who are pro Pocono and the people who are against Pocono. The pro Pocono people are the veteran drivers, the drivers who've been doing this for way longer than most of these guys. But then you look at a lot of the younger drivers. Mm-hmm. Robert Wickens was number one. I mean, he had that very viral tweet 
that he sent out where he was like, nope, nope, when are we going to learn that this is bad? When are we going to learn that IndyCar is bad for Pocono? Mateus Leist was even saying, I saw him on Instagram saying, I think that we shouldn't be going here. Max Chilton was a little bit more critical of the fence work, but then later started to think, I don't think we should be racing her. And I do think Max Chilton will start racing ovals again next year once we get the halo. But I do think that if Pocono comes back, he might skip that race. Not sure. I'm speculating that. That's pure speculation on my part. Um, And I wouldn't blame him. Uh, He wants to do what's best for him. He's got a life he wants to live, and he wants to drive race cars. And, you know, you do you, man. Um, but, but, But it was interesting, definitely, to see some of that kind of reaction. I'm going to go ahead here and, and, and start my rant on my pro Pocono rant. And I'm, I'm going to touch on a couple of different subjects here. I'm going to try and keep this to about seven to eight minutes as best I can. So I'm going to go ahead and start right now and, and, and go from there. So IndyCar racing, no matter what, is going to be dangerous. Racing in general is going to be dangerous. There's nothing we can do about that. Whenever you're, you are sitting in a race car, or you're sitting in a car, period, and you are going over 50 miles an hour, you have the potential to get hurt or die. And I think, and, and I think when, when, when racing, this, this is just racing, racing is not 100% safe. And I think we have, we as a collective have almost become, because it's been, it, we went through a period of time where we didn't really lose a lot of drivers. You know, back back in, in, in the 80s, 70s, you know, we were losing drivers almost every season. And then there went, got uh, the 90s and the 2000s where we weren't losing a lot of drivers. And we got into the 2010s and we lost a couple and those were real big. But we created uh, this, this kind of idea that, okay, racing now is safe and it should be 100% safe. And any time that we do anything that's not 100% safe, we need to leave that. We need to stop doing that. We, need, we can't do that anymore. And that is not the way we need to be thinking. Racing is inherently dangerous. Now, what I learned, I learned at a very, very long age, young age. Because I was five years old when Dale Earnhardt died. Okay? I was five years old when Dale Earnhardt died. And I learned at a very young age that auto race... I, no, I, in fact, I was four years old, too, when Adam Petty and Kenny Irwin passed away. And I learned at a very, very, very young age that auto racing is dangerous. And that anytime you tune into a race or you purchase a ticket to a race, there is a chance, however slight and however minor it may be, that you could witness somebody getting injured or hurt. And to be a race fan or to be a supporter of races or to be a race car enthusiast, you must accept that. You must come to terms with this and you must accept that as a possibility. Unfortunately, we've lost that, I think. We've lost that idea that auto racing is inherently dangerous. So we create these knee-jerk reactions that says, okay, anytime there's an injury or anytime there's a potential for injury, we just need, we can't go to that track anymore. Back, again, going back to the 90s, when we lost drivers, we, we lost Jeff Krosnoff in 1996 at Toronto, and we lost to Marshall as well. You know what we did? We improved safety. We didn't stop going to Toronto. We didn't alter the Toronto layout. We, we, we did better. We worked to make safety better. When we lost Gonzalo... When, no, when we lost Greg Moore at Fontana in 1999, we didn't stop going to Fontana. 
We couldn't stop going to Fontana. Of course not. It's the most exciting track on the race on the circuit. We can't stop going to Fontana. Are you kidding me? Let's make the car. Let's make the situation that happened not happen again. Let's pave the backstretch so that he doesn't flip over like that. Okay. Now that's not going to happen again. Okay. And then when we lost with Gonzalo Rodriguez, what did we do? Okay, we didn't stop going to Laguna Seca. We didn't stop going to Laguna Seca, did we? No, we kept going there. We just made the things safer. And then all of a sudden, and, you, and then all of a sudden, we get the 2011, and we lose Dan Weldon. And it's all of a sudden, it's like, all right, no, we're, that's when all this kind of discussion started. No more Indy cars on ovals. Like, that's what people were saying. No, no, Indy car can't race on ovals anymore. It's too dangerous. It's too dangerous. Well, what? Who was saying that when Greg Moore died? Who was saying that when, you know, Jeff Krosnoff died? And that was on a road course. Nobody was saying that. Nobody said that back then. Nobody thought about that because everybody knew that IndyCars, the point of IndyCar was supposed to be raced on road and oval courses. You, you, it's not IndyCar unless you're racing on a road course. I mean, on an oval. It's, it's not IndyCar. And so what we ended up doing was there was so much fan backlash that we didn't go back to Vegas. We canceled their contract. We had three years on the contract and we canceled it. And people got happy. People were like, okay. But the truth of the matter is, and I hate to say it, but the truth of the matter is, we should have raced at Vegas in 2012. That should have happened. Because the car was safer. We, we knew what the, the cause of the accident was. We had an unsafe car that created ultra amounts of downforce, that created an incredible amount of dirty air. We had 34 cars, which was the most cars ever entered in an IndyCar race, period. Outside, more cars than had ever even attempted Indianapolis. Um... We had, uh, we had a boatload of inexperienced drivers. We had drivers who hadn't run a, a full-time race in years that were out there. We had a bunch of random cars that probably didn't mean, need to be it out there running. And we had a bad accident. Now, fast forward to 2012, none of that happens. None of that's there anymore. All those factors are gone. We could have ran there in 2012. We should have ran there in 2012. And it was complete BS that we didn't run there in 2012. Moving on, people started bringing up Houston then. I think Nick Bromberg brought up Houston. And I, I, I praised Bromberg a, a while ago after Spire, but now I'm going to criticize him because he's wrong. He's wrong. He's perpetuating this idea that we need to get a knee-jerk reaction and stop going to racetracks just because something bad happens instead of actually working to make the cars safer or make it working to make the things not happen again. Did you see Pocono's catch fence in turn two? It's rusted. It's gross. It's disgusting. It's behind the times. It's not the kind of... It's unsafe. It's not the track. Pocono's not unsafe. It's that freaking catch fence out there. That's not what we need to be having. That catch fence out there is dangerous. And the patch job that they did, not just last year with Wiccans, but this year as well, was disgraceful. It was disgraceful, it was disgusting, and I cannot believe that IndyCar allowed the race to continue both times. But again, I want to also state that that accident was not caused by the track itself. I analyzed that accident for, a, for about a solid hour, trying to figure out how it happened. 
And what I was able to come to the conclusion of was Sato was coming up on the back end of Dixon, pulling up the toe. Rossi was about to back off to get into the tunnel turn. Sato was basically going to clear both Rossi and Hunter Ray. It really wasn't even all that daring of a move, although people say it was. All Sato did was he had a huge draft, and he got up on the side of Dixon, and it caught Rossi off guard. Rossi was unaware, was, was, he had Hunter Ray on the bottom of him, he was trying to give Hunter Ray room while also backing off so that he didn't take it too wide in the tunnel turn, which, Robert Wickens, you're not supposed to do, by the way, you're not supposed to do that, maybe, you know, if you didn't do that last year, you wouldn't be in this situation today, we're not allowed to criticize Robert Wickens, but, hey, in all honesty, he shouldn't have tried to take it too wide into the tunnel turn against Ryan Hunter Ray, if you wouldn't do that at Indianapolis at turn one, then you shouldn't do it in the tunnel turn at Pocono. All right? And that's just them's the facts. So anyway, then we've got Hunter Ray, and all that happens is Rossi has no idea Sato's coming up on him, and he's already turning to the right to give Hunter Ray more room, and Sato comes up on him. The air coming off of the back of Dixon's car basically causes him to buff it a little bit, causes the car to move down a little bit while Rossi's moving up. Both of them collide and collect uh, Hinchcliffe, Hunter Ray, and Rosenquist, all right? Now, that's how that happened, and that was not a devastating crash either, and I know I'm going over time, but I've still got a few more things to say. That was not a devastating crash. People on Twitter and in the media saying that this is a devastating crash are wrong. Last year's crash was a devastating crash because Robert Wickens got hurt, but I have seen far worse accidents at road courses than what I saw on Sunday. Now, and on Sunday, that doesn't even rank in my top 30 of bad crashes that I've seen in my lifetime. It doesn't. It might rank 31st, but it's not in my top 30. I've seen terrible accidents before where drivers walk away unhurt, and we don't blame the track, we blame the situation. We blame the racing deal, or we blame the safety failures that we had. And quite frankly, it's time for us as race fans to wake up and realize that it's not the track, and we don't need to abandon a track every time that something bad happens. Because this is exactly why IndyCar doesn't go back to Charlotte, doesn't go back to Atlanta, doesn't go back to Vegas, places that they should be going because of this. We didn't stop going to Texas. We're not going to stop going to Texas. We shouldn't stop going to Texas. Therefore, we should stop going to Pocono. And that is my rant, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. I know I went a little bit over time there. Thankfully, we've got a little bit more time, but I think we should move into the upshift and downshift I now. I got one thing I want to say. You know, you, you said a lot of great stuff, but a lot of people were saying, you know, we need to quit going there because someone got hurt. Daytona, NASCAR, has eight deaths. How um, many deaths does Indianapolis have? Deaths? Way at, too many. Uh, I can look it up. 36. 36 deaths in Indianapolis, and, and yet nobody cries for and, that to be off the schedule. And inherently, I think... If I could play the devil's advocate and, and play the other side, I uh, this is the thought that came to my mind. If you take Pocono off, that's one less place where, or that's that's two hundred fewer laps where a possible issue can happen. I'm not saying that's right or, or, or wrong, or that's the right way to look at it, or that's the wrong way to look at it. But that's that's one thought that came to my mind. But I mean, what can happen at what happened at Pocono can happen at Indianapolis, can happen at Texas. It can happen um, it anywhere. It can happen anywhere. It can. It, it, you're in open wheel racing is extremely dangerous, and I think that's where you're looking at the this older generation, this older generation of drivers, or, or the older drivers in the field, the veterans. They've seen that. These younger drivers haven't seen that as much because the cars are safer. Drivers are better. Um, 
yeah, we look at NASCAR. I, I sometimes you know, there's a wreck at Pocono, Indianapolis, and there's a pack Daytona, Talladega. They all look bad. Mm-hmm. They all look bad. You know, we've, we've improved safety. You talk about the catch fins. We've improved the cars. We've improved the helmets. You have the Haas device now. You have stronger roll cages in NASCARs. You have the safer barriers, which is probably that and the Haas device are probably the most the, the best safety improvements ever in in racing. And the, now we got to look at the catch fence. I said this before when Carl Loder's back in two thousand nine. Like, we got to look at this catch fence. That thing tore away too much. And then NASCAR had about six years there where they had a couple nasty wrecks. Their cars got up into the catch fence. You know, this the technology we haven't improved that. And I was more st- from the standpoint of the fans. Okay, we need to protect the fans. We've, we've concentrated so much on the driver safety. Now we got to worry about the fans, but this kind of goes hand in hand. Um, I don't know. I'm not an engineer. I'm not smart enough to figure that out. Okay, but there are people out there who are going to places like Purdue University here in Indiana who can figure that out. Whether that is some sort of, again, I might be using the wrong words here, but wiring or or something like a ballistic shield, where we can at least improve the technology in the most vulnerable places. A trioval at Daytona and Talladega, turn two, turn three at Pocono, turn one and three at Indianapolis. Can we at least improve where the cars are turning and the G-forces and the, and the direction, the momentum wants to carry a car another direction? Straightaway is something else. Granted, you can have an accident happen anywhere. But is there a place where we can, you know, a way we can improve those, those types of deals? So in, 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 on top of that, I can go into the dirt racing. This is my last point here. We can go to dirt racing. There's a lot of tracks in dirt racing, sprint car, late modified, that we shouldn't be going to because drivers have, have, have been killed there. It's inherent danger. We've been extremely blessed in the world of racing. We've seen fewer deaths now. Formula One and NASCAR especially, they, they had that one that just gravitated their attention, and no one's been hurt severely since. Um, in any car, it made improvements, and I think the improvements in the car now it's more so the catch fence, okay, and, and driver mistakes, you know, making sure drivers understand, okay, you can't do this here, or or being using your brain, as some guys said, that might be a little morbid, but that's just the, that's just the reality of the situation. You got to use your head, and now we got to concentrate on on the catch fence, like you said, and I and I agree. They probably shouldn't have been racing either year after the, after the repair work. Um, so that that's my little deal there. We're going to move on now into the upshift downshift. We're going to make this quick. We're going to make it quick. Rapid fire upshift yeah. downshift. Right. Yep. I so, mean, we, we do have extra yeah, time, uh, but I, we've got a lot to get to still. So Yeah, so here we go. Uh, first one. We have discussed this before on this podcast, but in light of this week's news, we will talk about it again. Should NASCAR lift the four-team limit for Monster Energy NASCAR Cup Series teams, but continue to limit each team to a limit of four charters. So basically you can have five teams, but you can only have a max of five or four charters. So do you upshift or downshift? I upshift on that because it just reminds me exactly of how we used to do it with the top 35 and owner points. I mean, you could probably just shift a charter to one place and make sure that that car can qualify for a race and then, you know, shift the charter around and I don't know if that works. I I don't know if that works, but I upshift because it needs to happen so that we don't have situations like this where drivers are forced to retire or forced to take another ride or forced, you know, essentially pushed out because there's just not enough rides. If Gibbs, Gibbs probably has the money. They could probably run seven cars if they wanted to. And, and have no problems with the... I mean, I'm certain that they probably have the sponsorship for them, you know, because clearly they do. 
it's it's a matter it's a situation where NASCAR needs to open up this rule. I understand that it's for costs, but at this point, what what it's just deterring the the overall like quality of the drivers you know we're pushing out veterans for young guys and then when those young guys don't perform like we think they should say like suarez or jones we push them out and we say no you're gone now you know or de benedetto we push them out you say you're gone kenseth got pushed out you know it's not how it's supposed to be guys that's not how we're supposed to be you're supposed to like shift into a new role you're supposed to go to a new team you're supposed to get moved to a new car i don't understand why we can't just open up open up the ability to run more than four cars again. I mean, why do we have to... We have so many alliances now. We basically are running, like, multiple cars. I mean, every every team's got an alliance now, you know, so that they can run more cars, they can run more drivers and more cars. I mean, it's silly. It's silly. They're circumnavigating this rule and preying off of other teams just so that more guys can get through when because there's not enough room when there should be enough room. We didn't have this problem... Like I said, 20 years ago, because we had uh, plenty of guys, you know, you didn't have a, a team limit. I don't know. That's I'm going to upshift on that. That's a pretty easy upshift for me. Uh, upshift for me, too. I'm going to take another angle here, and I'm going to just concentrate on the... I'm going to keep a quick rant here. It's going to be a really quick rant. But upshift. I do believe... Don't know how they have enough money for seven teams, and at seven teams, you're competing against yourself, so that's not necessarily... The, I don't know if that's the healthiest thing, but five, you could say the same thing. But... You could put a Christopher Bell in a fifth car. I believe Gibbs could put all five cars in each race. I don't think they'd have to worry about that. Even if you had, were bringing 44 cars to a, a race, I don't think they'd have to worry about that. But the problem is, with in this Matt Benedetto situation, obviously that's why we're asking this question this week, is the Matt Benedetto situation. Toyota is ahead of its time. And I say that because if NASCAR ever gets to five manufacturers in the sport, okay, and that's what their aim is to get, and I think that's a really sweet spot. You're not going to have Chevrolet out there with 20 teams, and they have throwing most of their money at 10 of them, and the other 10 are just getting a little bit of money. Each team's going to have uber money thrown at them to run well. Okay, So it's going to be quality over quantity. Toyota's ahead of the game on that game, or that, that side, and they want to keep it to five cars. Now there's sometimes a sixth or seventh Toyota out there, but they don't have the backing that even Levine family racing has. So, in this case, for for Gibbs, you could keep that six driver. Or you could keep a six driver in this case because you had three guys competing for two spots. So, I upshift for that in general. And again, you also have the R&D car. You can't have an R&D car if you're Gibbs, Hendrick, or Stuart Haas right now. You don't have enough teams. Or you have too many teams. You don't have a spot open. Um, so, that's what stinks at this moment. You can't You can't put that young guy in there to test him out. So, moving on. That was my quick rant. Moving on. It was reported by Spanish media that Fernando Alonso was offered Pierre Gasly's seat after the summer break concluded, but turned it down. Alonso is reportedly only considering a return to Formula 1 if Mercedes or Ferrari offer him a contract. Do you upshift or downshift on Alonso's decision? I think if I'm Fernando Alonso at this point, he gets to dictate whatever he wants to do. Um, He's got plenty... Everybody knows how good Alonso is. So, if Alonso wants to go I mean I think I get it I think I read in the article the reason why I posed this question in the article that I uh that I read about this was because Fernando Alonso had said that um he had been offered the ride after Nico Rosberg retired he had been offered the Mercedes ride but it wasn't able he wasn't able to get it done because he was still under contract with McLaren and Honda 
now that he's kind of more free to do whatever he wants, he obviously wants that Mercedes ride that he feels like he wasn't able to get. I mean, honestly, I upshift, because I think if Alonso wants to come back and just say, yeah, guys, I'm better than you guys, let's let's go out there and beat Hamilton and stuff, I think he should. But if I also remember, last time he was teammates with Hamilton, it didn't work out that well with McLaren in, in 2007. So, I mean, it's kind of hard for me to d decide what to do, but I think if Alonso, Alonso's obviously, he's done everything he wanted to do in Formula 1. He's done everything he wanted to do in sports cars now. All he's got to do is win that 500, and then, I mean, he, that's it. But ultimately, I think for Alonso, he's at the point where he should be able to do whatever he wants to do. I upshift. More power to you, Fernando. Keep going. I'll upshift. Slightly. Um... I think it would have been neat to see. I don't know what the Honda situation is. That could have been that could have been the problem. While you know why he can take the Red Bull, I don't know. Um, but I'll upshift. Yeah, I kind of have to agree with you. He he can dictate his own terms. Um, would definitely be interesting to see him back and and have him with either you know Hamilton or you know who would he be with at Ferrari? I think it's almost like, who are you going with at this point with Ferrari. So I'm, that's all I'm going to say. Upshift for that. He can dictate his own terms on that side. Uh, IndyCar's silly season is in motion, and Colton Herta is one of the key pieces in the 2020 equation. Herta declined to, to comment on any talks surrounding a 2020 ride, but when it comes to returning to Harding-Steinbrenner, he told Motorsport.com that it, quote, doesn't seem like it's going to happen. Herta continued saying, anywhere I go, it has, it has to uh, make sense. It has to be competitive. If it's not going to be competitive, then why leave the situation I'm at right now where I can fight for pulls and wins? So do you upshift or downshift Harding Steinbrenner Racing's potential to compete for an NTT IndyCar Series Championship? Well, I think for... I think Colton is... is he's at a situation, too, where people know what his talent level is. People know that he's good. I mean, dude won at Coda. I mean, I think he's... I think he's fine for the most part. I, I don't think anybody doubts the level of talent that Colton Herta has. But I think that, you know, if he's offered a ride at somewhere better than Harding Steinbrenner, I don't see any reason why he shouldn't take it. Uh, if, because if, based, I mean, if you look at what, what's going on for him this year, it's just been mechanical failure, bad luck, I mean, a crash, something like this. Why not just go somewhere where you're probably going to... I mean, crashes you can't really prevent because they're going to happen one way or another. Either you make a mistake or someone else makes a mistake or whatever. But mechanical failures, those are things where if those are far too frequent, it's time to get out of there. It's time to get out of there. It's time to go somewhere else. He's been linked to, to the new McLaren Aero SPM deal. I'm, I wouldn't be opposed to him doing that. I would hate to see uh, either Hinchcliffe or Ericsson not be there. I, I'd hope that Marcus Erickson would go somewhere still productive because I love Erickson. I think he's a great fan favorite. I think a lot of people just love Marcus Erickson because he's a great personality. He's a good driver and, and, and people just seem to enjoy being around him. I would hate to see Erickson go, but I do think that if, if, if Harding Steinbrenner wants to, to get someone new, then they should probably go after someone who's going to be displaced from the whoever is displaced from the the SPM merger. Uh, I'm upshifting on that because, well, no, actually, what was the question? Do you upshift on downshift on Hardy Steinbrenner's potential to compete in the NTT IndyCars? Oh, I downshift on that. There's no way. 
at this point at this point in time now no there's no way there's no way they're going to do it um they're they're making too many mistakes the mechanical failures are far too often for for colton herta uh, so i don't blame herta if he wants to leave it all yeah, they, it would have to downshift too because I don't unless I know they're acting as like a fifth Andretti car, but they're acting as a fifth Andretti car. Um, yeah, they, if if I could, I, I know him and and George are really good friends, and I mean, I'd be like, man, we gotta we gotta improve drastically. I think at best, if I was in his shoes, I'd, be, I'd give you a one year deal. But then again, does that close any opportunities on the way? You know, is there going to be a seat open at Andretti in one of the actual Andretti cars? I don't know. There's, you know, it's why it's called silly season, right? Uh, and silly season kind of doesn't end anymore. It it it, it kind of continues on. Um, yeah, but in the current state, I got it. Da- I got a downshift on their potential. Um, I think if you could eliminate the mechanical stuff, the crashes are have been limited, and and the driver mistakes. I think I've been overall for a rookie pretty limited in his in his in his season, but the mechanical issues, you know, it kept him from a GP win, it kept him from an Indy 500 r- good run there. and he, It kept him from even competing in Indianapolis, yeah, period. I yeah. mean, the dude qualified and ran so well all month, and then he gets out there, and five laps within the race, he's done. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, come it's, on. It's, it's, so, yeah, I, I have to have some pretty big good reassurances, but downshift for right now, I got to downshift their, their ability. So here is one of the more interesting ones, I think, of the weekend. There were some there were some interesting Twitter conversations about short tracks. Uh, one Twitter user even suggested to Texas Motor Speedway's Eddie Gossage, who's the track manager there, uh, to tear down his track and build a short track, basically build Bristol. And then Auto Week's Matt Weaver commented to just build a Winchester Speedway clone uh, with an extra degree of banking in the name of Braggadocio. That uh, basically bragging rights, I guess. So, do you upshift or downshift the idea of a West Coast? I know Texas isn't West Coast, but a more Western short track on the NASCAR schedule. And do you have a suggestion? Well, first and foremost, I don't agree with the idea of tearing down Texas. Yeah, I don't agree. Can, that, I don't agree with that either. I mean, yes, they ruined turns one and two, but turns three and four, of Texas are still kind of fun to watch. And Texas in itself is still. I like Texas. I love Texas. I think it's a fun track to go to. I always get kind of secretly hyped whenever NASCAR and IndyCar goes to Texas. I don't know why I, why that is. It's something internally for me. Maybe Eddie Gossage just got in my head and says, hey, love Texas. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I think a short track on the West Coast like Winchester would be really awesome because, I mean, I love Winchester. You and I both went to the Winchester 400 this past year, and we loved it. That track is an awesome track. I would love to see Arca go back there. Uh, I don't think that's ever going to happen again, unfortunately. But, yeah, if we had a Winchester-type track out west, that would just be the bee's knees. I mean, that would be fantastic. I think that's something that needs to happen. More West Coast short tracks would be really, really beneficial, I think. Uh, and, I mean, we have West Coast short tracks out there, like Kern County and places like that, but at Irwindale and things like that. But but they're, they're so... They're flat. They're so flat. They're not high banked they're not high speed like winchester or like salem or like bristol or something like that you know that's that's the kind of tracks that i think people really like to see because that's usually where you know you can run the top you can run the bottom depending on how the track is built and usually if it's a top line fest it's a little bit more entertaining usually if it's a bottom line fest there's a lot more bumping and beating and banging so really there's a lot of different opportune ways you can go about it I'm upshifting 100% because that's something i would love to see not only nascar go to but just any you know Silver Crown, late model, whatever. I would just love to see something like that. Yeah, I'm going to upshift too. Wow, we're agreeing really a lot today. Uh, but upshift, 
I'm gonna go now. I'm gonna keep it simple. Uh, yeah, you could build a track, but let's. I don't know. I'm gonna be maybe a little slightly more realistic. I say Kern County only needs really only needs a pit road, and it could host a cup race. Now it's only got how many seats it's got. It doesn't have a whole lot of seats. Could use some more grandstands, but hey, the campers would be happy just lying around the the outside. So, but it does need because you got a road course, you got a you got a speed speedway or super speedway, and then you got another speedway in Las Vegas, and then you have the intermediate track at Phoenix. Uh, which kind of sort of and, and, and I just just thinking too is you think about Iowa and how popular Iowa is. Yeah. I mean Iowa is a great short track. I yeah. mean it's 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 not it's like a it's I call it, I consider it like a super speedway short track. It's a super short track. It's a yes, it's a super short track where it's not like it's not built like a short track, but in length it it is considered a short track. Yeah. But it does not drive like a short track. You do not drive that thing like a short track, and that's what makes it so interesting. So fans really love that, and you know I'm. Maybe it's just because I was just literally staring at my Field of Dreams VHS. It's right in front of me. But if you build it, they will come. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that could really, really apply in this situation. And and one little note on that was, you know, when you look at the three short tracks that are on the cup schedule, they're all really close in proximity, and they're in the southeast region of which the state. Which is fine, because which that's fine. where NASCAR needs yeah. to be. But yeah. if, you, if NASCAR is still desiring to go to a more... A, a, a more popular market. Yes. Then that's something that needs well, to be. Well, it gets that West Coast. You're going to get the West Coast. Here's what built NASCAR short track mm-hmm. racing on the West Coast would be great. We'd have it. And while you see that in the short tracks in the Canyon West, you don't see the cup guys going there like they once did on short tracks in, back in the day. Uh, so the um, next one, a little more serious one here. After the reports of uh, homophobic slurs being used by a crew member on Matt Crafton's radio, some have called for better policing of the radios in NASCAR. Do you upshift or downshift on an idea like that? I think this is an interesting question because it's very hard to to predict. Because I think when you when you listen to a radio, a scanner, or when you dial up a, a, a guy on a scanner, you're hoping to see hear like you know profanity. I mean, everybody does. Everybody's really hoping to hear a driver or a crew chief get really frustrated, really angry, say something really kind of funny. You know, I've heard my fair share of stuff on the radio that I would consider funny, you know, that I would consider angry. But I think with stuff like that, it can be very off-putting. You know, it's it's funny to a degree, but when you start getting into that level of, you know, like I don't mind a guy going on a profanity-lidden tirade. Like, to be honest with you, when Kurt and Kyle Busch were doing that, couple of years ago, it was the funniest gosh darn thing I'd, I'd, I'd ever heard. It, it made me laugh, and I started to, like, quote them when I was in traffic or something just because it was funny. I just thought it was funny. So, but there does need to be a line. There do need to be some kind of guidelines. So I'm going to neutral shift this because I think that there needs to be some kind of guidelines for what you can't. Obviously, yeah, don't call another guy an effing, you know, that and, and and just but but you you can call him like something else you could call him like an effing a-hole or something and say that in a hilarious way i don't mind that but when you go when you start bringing in aspects of a and i don't even i don't even understand where that came from i don't even think Stuart friesen i don't understand where that came from but yeah i i think that there needs to be some kind of repre uh, yeah, I think there needs to be some kind of consequences for something like that, and um, I think maybe a little bit more policing for that because we do want to make sure that P 
people don't think NASCAR, the people involved in NASCAR, think in a way that's very, very antiquated. We don't want to allow people to think that. And if we have people saying that over the radio, we need to do something to stop that. Because I don't mind people going on profanity-lidden tirades, but when it starts bringing in slurs like that, that's when I think we have a problem. Yeah, neutral for me for different reasons, and you brought it up the line. There's a line, there's a lot of things you can say on a NASCAR radio. There's a lot of things you can say. But there's a line, and it's way out there, and this crew member crossed it. I'm going to neutral for now because we have NASCAR hasn't had to deal with this. This is the first time this has really come up. And maybe actually it isn't the first time it's been said, but it's the first time someone's been caught. And so NASCAR has to... I imagine NASCAR is probably going to find out who this is, and they're going to be suspended, fine. Team might even be penalized because that's a team effort, right? You gotta, you gotta. Like, they can't allow this to continue, um, even if it's the first time. So for to me, I, I'm going to neutral because I want to see what NASCAR does. It's too early for me to decide upshift or downshift. Um, I, I don't think NASCAR has a problem with this. Because, again, it's the first time we've yeah. seen it. This isn't like it, it's a prevalent yeah. issue. This is just like an isolated thing. Yeah. And this, and, and I don't think NASCAR can come out on the bad side of things in today's environment if they actually punish it. Because that will look up crazy. Well, yeah, they, they are. They are. It, nobody's yeah. really going to be yeah. upset about that. People are probably going to be more upset if they don't, don't yes. do anything. Yeah. And, and this, this, yeah, this can't be. So I'm going to neutral because they haven't made a decision. But I imagine I would change it to upshift. So we're going to move on to the outstanding performance. Um, you know what? It's simple, and I've ranted on it earlier. It's Matt Benedetto mm-hmm. For the week he had, and this outstanding performance goes back all the way to last fall when he says, I'm not going to go fast racing. I'm going to bet on myself. He gets a Levine family racing. But we learned during the race that they didn't have cars in December. They get a slow start. Then they start picking it up here. It's Matt Benedetto for keeping it together and proving to the NASCAR world I belong in a top-tier cup car because I just took a generation-old Joe Gibbs car, Toyota, and just about beat them with it. Rob, what do you think? Uh, yeah, look, there's no other real way to put this. Matt Benedetto had one of the most impressive performances of the weekend. I can't recall ever seeing him outside of the top ten all night, and if it was, it was very, very briefly that he was. It, had it not been for the contact with Ryan Newman, I think this guy easily would have gotten his first career win. How? Who else do you give it to? I mean, after watching all the races this this weekend, it's like the one guy that had the most standout performance was definitely Matt Benedetto, where he was con- he qualified well, he ran well, he ran up front when it mattered the most, he was in a position to win the race. I mean, out of all the other races that I've seen this this weekend, that was probably the single best performance I had seen out of any driver. Second place was Willpower Strategist, but second place <laughs> is a long far is a long yeah, ways away. Very long far away. So, yeah. So Rob, why don't you lead us into the next one? Yeah, we're gonna go ahead here and talk about the best of the re- rest of the best. Excuse me. Uh, the these are the uh, other races that happen throughout the weekend that uh, you know are less lesser known races, not as big races, but still interesting to talk about. So, yeah. Uh, in Illinois, the ARCA, ARCA Racing Series, ARCA Menard Series in Springfield, Illinois at the in- Illinois State Fairgrounds, Michael Self dominated the second half of the Allen Crow 100 and held off teammate Christian Eckes on a green-white checker uh, finish to win his first career ARCA dirt race. It was a great race for ARCA. It was actually quite interesting because it did actually rain uh, in the middle of the race, 
but they actually continued to race on because they were on dirt, and you can race in the rain on dirt, albeit a light sprinkle, a light shower, nothing any too heavy, but that was very actually interesting to see uh, cars actually running on dirt while it was indeed raining. That was something I don't think I'd ever seen on television. Maybe I'd seen it probably uh, on, on the internet or maybe in, in real life once or twice, but I'd never actually seen that on television before. I remember being at a race at Plymouth Speedway here in Indiana, and it was sprinkling lightly, and that was it. That was it. That's cool. It was cool. Uh, for the k Pro Series East race at uh, Bristol, Sam Mayer was uh, penalized in the early stages of the Bush's Beans 150 for making contact with Chase Cabra, but slowly worked his way back to the front of the field with 13 laps to go and took the lead from Spencer Davis, who had led all 137 laps to that point. Haley Deegan made her first career start with DGR Crosley and had the speed, but faded to ninth by race's end. Throughout the race, she wasn't afraid to use the bumper, and uh, Sam Mayer extends his point lead to 22 points over Chase Cabra with three races remaining in the East Series. Now, for the K&N Pro Series West, they were in Evergreen Speedway this weekend. Trevor Huddleston led 85 of the 150 laps at Evergreen Speedway on Saturday en route to his victory, his second of the season. Points leader Derek Krause finished second, followed by the pole setter Brittany Zamora. Krause extended his point lead to 18 over Trevor Huddleston and Haley Deegan, who fell to third in the standings, 22 points back after a seventh-place finish. Now, at, in Super Formula, the uh, uh, the Super Formula race took place over the weekend at on at uh, Twin Ring, Ring Motegi on the road course. Uh, re- I'm going to butcher this. I apologize. Uh, Ryo Hirakawa beats Kamui Kobayashi by two seconds to win the Super Formula event at the Twin Ring Motegi. Uh, Nare Fukuzumi, he was a Formula 2 alum, finished fifth, while Artem Markalov, also a Formula 2 alum, uh, finished 12th, while Pato Award finished in the 14th position. Uh, and in other news, David Reagan announced this weekend that he will be retiring from full-time com- competition at the conclusion of the 2019 season to spend more time with his family. Reagan has two career Cup Series wins, two Xfinity, Xfinity wins, and one ARCA Series victory. Josh and I would like to wish him the best of luck in his future endeavors, and it will be interesting to see who may or may not take over his ride. I know... Just, I believe it was either this morning or late last night that it was broke by Adam Stern that Stuart Haas Racing is considering a uh, alliance with uh, GoFast Racing, which would de- which would probably put Cole Custer in the 32, displacing Corey LaJoy, who has now actually been linked to potentially taking over David Reagan's ride in the 38 at uh, Front Row Motorsports. So it'll be interesting to monitor that story and see what ends up happening. And so in the final 15 minutes, I think it's a good time to allow Josh to get into our featured racetrack of the week. Josh, why don't you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, so for today, we are heading out west to the Mojave Desert in southern Nevada, Stardust International Raceway. Uh, So when Stardust opened in 1965, Las Vegas' population was estimated at 149,000 people. The Union Pacific Railroad still operated a yard in downtown Las Vegas, and no interstates had arrived yet. A far cry from the 2.2 million people desert metropolis that has sprung up today. It was located four miles away from the glamorous Las Vegas Strip at the time. It was really, really nice. 65 it still was really nice. Um, it was built by Stardust Resort and Casino in an effort to attract wealthy and glamorous high rollers, as many sporting events as in Las Vegas did. According to a press release by the Stardust, Sterling Moss... Uh, was to design the course. At the end of the day, however, he had very little to do with the ultimate design outside of the early stages and really, I guess, didn't have a huge 
play in it. This kind of was press release at the time. Uh, the track owners were said to be the Stardust Racing Association. That included officers from the Stardust Racing Casino. And as we all know, it's kind of tough to see who owns what in Las Vegas. That's still kind of true today. Um, the track was a three-mile, 13-turn road course and became the answer for road racing in Las Vegas after a couple of failures, including an SCCA race held at McCarran Field in 1960, which is now McCarran International Airport, the, the big dog there uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, amenities were lacking at the facility. Even for 1965, it was it was lacking, um, and especially for Las Vegas standards. You probably expected more, and when you look at the, there used to be a horse racing track. There's now a golf course there. I mean, it was really lavish. So you expected a little bit more, even if it was four miles out of town. Um, so the first race was a non-spectator Cal Club race weekend in October of 1965. It was won by Jim Parkinson. Uh, the club racers were treated to an extremely lavish cocktail party. Probably something that they didn't see at other club racing events in California, even in California. Um, the quote, first big race uh, was held on November 14th of that year. It had a $36,700 purse and was known as the Stardust Grand Prix. The Stardust Casino bought seven pages in the November 27th issue of the competition press displaying the virtues of the track in Las Vegas as an amenity-driven destination. It's kind of easy to do. How in the world did they afford to buy seven pages in a newspaper? I know, right? Holy cow. <laughs> anyway, continue. <laughs> yeah. So in 1966, the U.S. Road Racing Championship, which kind of evolved now and now is IMSA, um... And the Can-Am Racing Series arrived. The USRC began their season at Stardust, and it figuratively and literally was a rocky start for both, as the series and the track had to deal with dust and rocks that plagued the racing surface. One uh, rock even struck local race driver Buck Fulp uh, in the face, sending him to the hospital. And breakdowns with oil spills that mixed with the sand made for a very dangerous surface for the drivers to race on. On top of that, spectator count was low and blamed on, guess what, 90 degree heat. Yeah, sounds familiar today, but it's not a new concept. It even happened back then. Uh, in 1967, the USRC season began. The race at Stardust again saw fewer than 5,000 people attend. Even names like Mark Donahue, Sam Posey, and George Fulmer weren't enough to attract a bigger crowd. Uh, it also didn't help that the USRC was a floundering kind of against the Trans Am and Can-Am series at the time, and only 11 of the 24 cars finished the race that started the race finished the race again mechanical problems and that you know dust rocks and whatnot just didn't mix with the cars the las vegas 350 was a trans am race held that september in 1967 and began at sunset and finished under the stars interesting concept or you know, for the time i really think what do you think that would be awesome to that would, see yeah it would be cool i think it was you know a neat little get up there Mark Donahue in his Penske Camaro won the event, besting the season-long better Mustangs and Cougars. The 1968 USAC USAC traveled to the circuit for its loan visit, but only 17 of Indy's best racers uh, drove in the event. It was won by Bobby Unser. Uh, It was run on March 31st of that year and saw Chuck Hulse and Dempsey Wilson not even start the race, and Dan Gurney exited um, with a listed suspension failure, but Gurney blamed Bobby Unser for tossing pea gravel on him, so basically going off track and knocking it into him. Um, he said he did it on purpose, but Bobby Unser denied intentionally tossing the gravel at Gurney uh, because he didn't go off course, which actually made sense because, as I've said before, the track was kind of covered at times, so you could toss pea gravel and rocks at someone, and you could be in the middle of the circuit. 
Um, and he didn't even complete one lap. He's listed as zero laps completed. So there you go. That was Gurney in that race. So automatically, you're down to 14 cars. You're not even one lap completed. Um, so yeah. In in uh, the final race at Stardust, featured the same group who put on the first event, the Cal Club. Alan Johnson won the event in a Porsche 910 in a field that featured Lola's, McLaren's, Stingray's, Cougars, and more Porsches. Uh, the downfall of Stardust really began when new owner, when the new owners of the Stardust Resort Casino, who owned the track, uh, didn't want to invest the needed money to upgrade the facility with proper amenities, you know, with grandstands, which were extremely lacking, and just more garage areas and, and suites and whatnot there, as well as the racing surface. It needed upgraded, and it kind of needed to fix the, the, the track where it wasn't knocking dust and, and rocks on the on the surface all the time. And as we see now, you can grow grass in Las Vegas. And in fact, as I'll get to in a second, there's grass growing where the track once stood. Um, so that was the beginning of the downfall. Then all of a sudden you had uh, homes being built, all kind of on the outskirts of the facility. But track manager Larry Horton leased the land of their speedway, uh, again, still under Stardust control, uh, for drag racing events in 1970. And then real estate developer Party Holmes bought the land and subsequently developed it. So today, the suburbia neighborhood of Spring Valley occupies the land that Stardust once stood. Uh, the first home started to kind of show up uh, on the immediate land in 1972 and 1973. Parts of the track remained. By 1975, the desert sands had now covered the, the, uh, the raceway. And by 1980, very little remained uh, of the short-lived Las Vegas road course. By 1988, the suburban growth had consumed the entire landmass and has officially joined the rest of the ghosts of the Mojave Desert. Ironically, in 2007, the Stardust Resort Casino uh, joined the raceway among the many former structures that once graced Las Vegas. So today's featured racetrack was brought to you by RacingReference.info, HistoricalAerials.com. And lost road courses by Martin Rodeau. So, m- Rob, could you imagine what we witnessed this past weekend at Bristol Motor Speedway in the middle of downtown Las Vegas? 160,000 seats, a casino on each corner of the speedway, and l- running 500 high banked uh, laps. That would probably be the coolest thing of all time. And I mean, especially like with how how popular sports betting is now. I could just imagine that being. The biggest event, probably in this in the area of Las Vegas, for a long time. That would be really really cool to see. Uh, it was the wrong track built, wrong type of track built. I don't think so. I don't. I wouldn't say that the wrong type because Vegas, Las Vegas, to all of its credit, it didn't deserve two cup dates. But I'll be honest, it has put on some really entertaining races. Oh yes, it has. It has. Um, so I, I I don't think they built the wrong type of of, of car of track there. Uh, it's still got an infield road course. I don't see what's wrong with that. You know, I, I think it's fine. But it would be cooler to see... Uh, and they got the Las Vegas Bull Ring, too. Yeah. So, I mean... I was thinking more like if you put a track downtown in your walking distance of the Strip and all of a sudden, like, there's a race on tonight and tickets start starting at 30 bucks. Why not go? I mean, I think it's better than watching. Uh, and you can bet on it, too. Probably. And you can bet on it, too. It'd be like betting on ponies, too. You, you're just yeah. betting... Imagine, like, a re- weekly racing tra- series there. And oh, it's just like betting yeah. on horses, but you're betting on cars. Yeah, that'd be I mean, cool. that would be pretty fun. So, yeah. so yeah. anyway, we've got about oh, say five minutes left. So I know, like I said, we've gotten a, we, you've gotten a bonus fifteen minutes. 
of the Racing with Robin Roller podcast. We're very glad that you were able to listen to us um, because, uh, again, we've got a, a brand new Twitter handle, at Robin Roller, and, again, you can always tweet tweet at us, uh, tagging us, and using the hashtag AskRobinRoller. So we're going to take a look at what's in the windshield for uh, this upcoming weekend. Uh, Formula One... Monster Energy NASCAR Cup Series and ARCA are all off this weekend, but there's still plenty of action. This Saturday is going to be a pretty busy one. The NASCAR Xfinity Series is at Road America for their third road course race in a four-week span for the SeaTech Manufacturing 180. Uh, probably is going to be Austin Sindrick making it three uh, of his last four and added to his playoff point total. Uh, Matt Benedetto is on the uh, the preliminary gri- uh, entry list to drive the number 18 car for Joe Gibbs. A.J. Allmendinger will be back in the number 10 for Colleague Racing. Uh, but also, uh, on Saturday, we've got the at uh, Gateway, the k Pro Series East and West will race in the second and final combination race of 2019. And following that, the NTD IndyCar Series races the Bomberito Automotive Group uh, 250. Or, or, excuse me, 500. Sorry, I skipped ahead. <laughs> also, uh, um, Alexander Rossi will look to make up lost ground on point leader Joseph Newgarden, while Simon Bagino and Scott Dixon look to continue to chip away at the points uh, lead. On Sunday, it is one of the best Gander Outdoors Truck Series weekends of the year. It is the Chevrolet Silverado 250 at Canadian Tire Motorsports Park in Mossport, Bowmanville, Ontario, where the winner's average age so far is 18.6. Chase Elliott is the youngest winner back in the inaugural race in 2013 at 17 years of age. Ryan Blaney won in 2014 and is the oldest at 20. If this were to continue, Tyler Ankrum, Harrison Burton, or Todd Gilliland might be good bets. Also, Alex Tagliani, a tag, will be returning, and he will be racing the Kyle Busch number 51 Toyota in that race. So I am excited to see a tag back because... Man, I, I miss seeing him out there and racing. Maybe he can finally break through in NASCAR's National Series. Well, he do, yeah, he does pretty good in the Pinties. Mm-hmm. So he's been running Pinty Series. So if you don't follow the, the, the Pinty Series in NASCAR, uh, Alex Tagliani runs that primarily. Uh, so we'll be, it'll be interesting to see uh, what he ends up doing uh, in that race. One final question idea. That this is, one is mine. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll take credit okay, for that. Okay, so, so he's going to interrupt well, me here. Go ahead well, and go for well, it. Well, I didn't want someone to blame you and go, dude, that's a dumb question. I'll, I'll, I'll take the heat. So, it's extremely retro, but we all know the Winston Cup Series and Winston West used to run their own combination races. So, basically, the West would just tag along with the Winston Cup Series and race into races. What if, uh, you know, there's only 28 trucks on the preliminary list for, uh, for, for this race at most sport. What if the Pinty series maybe tagged along and, and you had two different vehicles racing? Would you would you think that'd be cool? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I can't even. Be, I, I what did I not read this before? Did I not read that part? I you added just, that you after. Added that I after. Added I, okay, so that was I had, my crazy idea. I texted you about. Okay, um, so first of all, I dig it because it reminds <laughs> me of like sports car race, like multi class racing. Uh, I don't know how the teams would feel about it. I mean, maybe maybe if they were separated into two separate classes, like you have the truck class and then the Pinties class, maybe that would be something interesting. I couldn't imagine all of them racing. Well, not all the of them. Same. You, had, you had to qualify. You had to qualify. Right, they, like, yeah. they qualify, but yeah. I feel like it would be a lot better if you know they run them, ran them in classes. I think the, the Winston Cup and Winston West did that. I think it was more interesting because they were running the same type of cars. Well, that's what I think that makes it really crazy here, you know. Yeah. It's kind of sick to see a, a, a not a full field in Canada. You yeah, know? it is kind of disappointing to see uh, only 28 trucks on the entry list there. But, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think I think you're onto something here. 
but uh, I know it's crazy and far out. <laughs> it's far out, dude. I know so. <laughs> it's far out. Yeah. But um, anyway, that that would be quite interesting. So that's a good good way to leave us because uh, because we're we're about yeah. out of time yeah. here. Uh, so no, thanks for listening, everyone. You know, make sure you follow us on Twitter so you can keep up. You know, follow the the new Twitter for the for the uh, podcast. It's at Rob and Roller. The two R's are capitalized, and we'll be tweeting out stuff on 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 that uh, on that handle. Uh, the new podcast as well every week on that, and we'll 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 retweet stuff as well. You can follow us, so you know you can follow one of the three, or you can follow three and get triple the coverage. I mean, it just kind of depends on what you want there. Um, yeah, and and tune in next week. We got some good races to talk about. It's gonna be fun to watch the races, uh, Gateway, Most Sport, and and uh, and, and Canada. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna be fun. It's gonna be definitely fun. So thanks for watching. Thanks for all the support. If you're first time listener, hope you enjoyed it. And if you're returning, thanks for coming back. So have a great week, everyone, and uh, we'll see you next week.